Hi, welcome to Sweetman Podcast. I'm Simon Sweetman and we made it past the 100 episodes. This is episode 101. Um, my thanks as always to Tea Leaf Tea, Le Petit Chocolat and Yeasty Boys. And uh, this week um, is a chat with Ant Donaldson or Anthony Donaldson. I think most people know him as Ant. He's a Wellington-based drummer and, um, and musician, composer uh, and band leader and a uh, uh, musical you know an expert an expert on all things drums and drumming so uh he's a guy i'd wanted to talk to for a while we had a couple of goes at scheduling this and it didn't quite work out and um so we finally got together the other week and had this chat and um man he knows his stuff about drums and uh, and music and jazz in particular um he's He's a sort of a, a deep thinker and a big has been a big record collector and uh, and he's been involved in so many projects. So uh, you know, as I say, I, I know him well enough to, to to chat to outside of this. But um, this was me really sort of getting to know a lot about him and a lot about his 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 history. So he grew up in Hawke's Bay and moved to moved to Wellington in the seventies. Obsessed with jazz and um, joined joined and helped create things like the Primitive Art Group and the Six Volts. They went on to be the the band that recorded on that classic Front Lawn album, so we talked quite a bit about that. And um, but when I first moved to Wellington in '95, um, I saw and I didn't know who he was, but I saw him play on a, with a band that he ran called the Razorblades, and that that was a eureka moment for me. That blew my mind. Uh, I don't know if it was a couple of days later or a couple of years later, I can't quite remember, but he walked into a record store I was working in and I recognised him and, and went up to him and said, oh, you had this crazy jazz band, blah, 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 and got talking to him. Uh, so that was how we very first met. I don't know if he remembers that. but um, And then, of course, he'd just been one to watch ever since then. So I've seen him play in a variety of contexts from, and he'll give lectures on the history of you know, the hi-hat, one component of a drum kit, or he'll give lectures on swing drummers and the evolution of it, or the, you know, and uh, I've watched him give talks where he um, fires up an old gramophone and plays these 78s and talks through them. So he's a fascinating guy with, with a lot of knowledge and, and a deep story, and it was really great to connect with him and, and get a get a lot of that story. And when I, when I shared a photo of him on Facebook saying that this was gonna be a future episode, yeah, there were a lot of people that were very excited to hear it. Um, because I think you know that everyone knows he's a great player. He's, he's a world-class player, and he's played with world-class musicians, and he's been on the scene for a long time and helped uh, usher in a lot of new drummers and 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 tutor people. But uh, perhaps people don't know a lot, a whole lot about his life and 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 just how he's gone about making all of this music and what inspires him. So hopefully you'll get to hear that in this conversation, which is me and and the legendary Ant Donaldson. We've talked a little bit. Uh, you know, I've known you for a few years on and off casually and I've seen you play a lot and we've talked a wee bit and I've, I guess I kind of formally interviewed you once for that very short article um, that was about a couple of different drummers. Um, so I know a little bit about, about you but I want, I want you to tell me about how you came to all of this stuff and I want you to remind me if this, there might be one or two things I ask you that I have asked you again. But you grew up in Hawke's Bay? Yeah, I was born in Canterbury. Yeah. But yeah, I shifted to Hawke's Bay when I was eight. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and? And, um, <laughs> did you, how early in, in, in your life did you sort of find music? When did music speak to you? Was it in Hawke's Bay? Uh, was it before then? Or? No, no, it was, it was, I was eight when I went to Hawke's Bay. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and I've had, in past interviews, I've, I've always said I wasn't really into music. 
uh, up until a, uh, sort of around 14. Yeah. But having done, thinking about it, going back, um, in actual fact, there was music in our house right from the word go. Yeah. Your dad was a player of... Yeah, he was a, a drummer pipe, in a pipe, pipe band. band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and mum played the piano. So, but... Uh, Essentially, it's just that they were keen on music. Mm, mm. So there was music around, and Dad had his drumsticks and mallets uh, sort of around enough that I'm pretty sure I had a, some sticks in my bedroom mm. pretty early on. Mm, mm. And I had a little practice pad I think I'd made out of an uh, old tyre. But I was just mucking about, really. Mm, mm. Just mucking about. Uh, but around the age of... Uh, I always say it was it all happened on the first day of the fourth form. I'm pretty sure it was the f first day of the fourth form when I got into the new class for the year, and I was sitting beside this dude who was new because obviously some of the most of the guys probably were the same from the previous year. But where's this? Is this Hastings boys? Yeah. Yeah. And um, I had had a chat. And uh, we got the bus home together, and he said, do you want to come home and listen to some music? And I sort of said, yeah, shit, yeah, that'd be great. So we went round, and we went into his brother's room, actually, and here's this record collection, and he started showing me the album, and we put it on, and just the way it worked out, uh, I think the first album we put on was Hendrix, Band of Gypsies, which I had a poster of Hendrix, but I didn't really know what he did mm. exactly. Um, I'd probably heard a couple of tunes, but I just hadn't tipped, I hadn't kind of gone over yet. I was still a kid, mm. kind of vibe. And then um, met Donald and played the, the, these albums, which I've remembered most of them now. There was Cream, The Best of Cream, Hendrix Life at the Fillmore, um, Jethro Tull, Stand Up, Ticket, John Barleycorn Must Die, Rodriguez, um, and Frank Zappa, Hot Rats. I think that's what we played mm. on the first day. Mm. And the Zappa one was put on last. Mm. So I was absolutely like gobsmacked and just looking at the covers, I remember thinking, how, yeah, I'm in. And I liked Donald, mm. and he was trying to grow his hair long. And so suddenly I just flipped into that culture and my schooling went down terribly. <laughs> and um, Your interest in music went up. My, my, I feel like I'd become obsessed actually just, and I was buying, started to buy albums. Just hearing those records named, and I'm, I mean, I think I was the very end of my third film year, you know. Uh, I'm younger than you, but I'm, I mean, when I was... In my third from year, I think that's when I got given a copy of Best of Cream on vinyl that was in my uncle's collection, and um, you know CCR and, and uh, Traffic and, and Mike Oldfield and all, you know Zappa, all, lots of those. And listening to those names that you reeled off those albums, I just thought, well, that's a pretty good kind of. That's the cream of the crop. <laughs> yeah, I was just gonna say, like, if that doesn't make you want to be a musician or, or have a go, it certainly makes you want to become a. Pretty well, interested I wasn't thinking listener. I wanted to be a musician. No, no, but, but it I just was gets you so into music. Into music. That's what I mean. Yeah, they, yeah, they yeah. Such good albums. Yeah. and it's all varied. Yeah, and um, yeah, it's totally in there, totally immersed. Yeah. But the Zap one particularly was the one that uh, uh, the the Hendrix one, and but that Zap one that had something about it that uh, really 
I really don't. Mm. And it took me years to figure out why was that the album. And I, I've clicked to it, unbeknown to me, mm. uh, it's an instrumental album. Mm. Apart from one track, the Beefheart sings on that. Uh, but essentially, it's yeah, yeah. Uh, instrumental, and it hadn't really dawned on me that's why I liked it so much because all the others got singing and so on. So that's how I got in, and it went on like that for uh, ages. And I collected a, a massive amount of records in a very quick space of time, mm. and it was pretty varied too. It started broadening out, especially you know. Uh, but the next thing, uh, as, we, as I'm working through all this, I started becoming really interested and wanted to hear some proper jazz. Mm. So when Hastings went down to the shop and, and said, you know, oh, what, where's the jazz when I want to... Because the word jazz was coming up all the time now. And I had Bitches Brew and I hadn't made the, the different... I hadn't kind of... To me, it was all just rock. What was the shop then? Was it Sutcliffe's? Was that... There was Around? that was that was, was yeah. there, but no, it was called um, Fusion Records, and right. it was about as big as this room. Yeah, and the guy didn't know anything about how to run a record shop. shop. Yeah, and, um, <laughs> so he had the um, he had his jazz bin, and I went over and I looked through it, and I just couldn't, <clears throat> I just couldn't, you know, make head and tail of it. I had bought, a, actually owned a jazz record. I had um, Roland Kirk, Inflated Tear, mm. but I didn't. Realised that was jazz. Yeah, I saw yeah. it as instrumental. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I was, was going to say it's not actually that different to Hot Rats in terms of you know no. the, the pulse about it and what it's trying to do and say well, to, actually, to a young mind. I didn't. Uh, it blew. Uh, it was a. That was the first album I got in my collection that I found difficult mm. because I knew it was bl a black record mm -hmm. and he's wailing on that. Mm -hmm. and there's some serious mm -hmm. emotion on that album and I thought, Christ. Oh God, that's just so heavy. And I knew that, and you got it back then, it, they'd only had the vote in a couple of years, and slavery was still very much in the foreground of their minds, and so I understood it, and I thought, well, I can never go down that road, really. Mm -hmm. And so that record didn't get a huge amount of hearing. Um, and then uh, he said, well, this is the jazz bin, you know, have a look, and I said, oh. And um, I bought an album, he said, this one's really popular. I bought it, went home, put it on for about one minute and thought, no way, I've kind of got stuff like this. This is mm. not what I'm thinking. Mm. I know this is not what they're talking about when they talk. So we went back, I said, no, I don't want this. And then um, these records suddenly were there and they were there a long time, but suddenly for the first time I looked at them and I realised, what are these? And I was printing at the... I was doing a printing apprenticeship at the time and I suddenly looked at them and I thought, my God, the printing process on these is absolutely incredible. Mm. And uh, suddenly I was like, wow, what are these? And they came from Germany and it's like, okay. And I said to him, what, what, are, what are these? He said, I've got no idea. They, the rep brought them in. <coughs> he said, give them a go, see if he can sell them. And I, okay. And so I said, looked at them and I ended up buying two. The, the Circle concert with Braxton, Chick Corea, Dave Holland and Barry Elstall and Triptychon, Jan Garbrook, Arnold Anderson and Edward Vassala and both, one was recorded in Germany and the others recorded in Oslo and uh, so I took them home, gave them a go and put them on the stereo and just right from the word go I knew, right, this is not so, the old school jazz, but this is jazz, man. Yeah, this yeah. is so jazz, the, and I love it because the stuff that spoke to you. Oh yeah, because the drummer's got. So this is what mid seventies, mid to late seventies. Seventy four. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, 
and that was it. In that little moment, I was sitting there playing, the mum was making tea because the radiogram was up at the top of the house. And she's like, turn it down a bit, can you? And I turn it down and I'm going, mum, mum, gee, man, you won't believe what I'm hearing. And because uh, I just heard Edward Basala doing a drum solo, but mm. as a composition, mm. and beautiful roles, and I just thought, my God, those cymbals sound fantastic. And <laughs> Barry Elstel's all over the kit like an octopus, and it was just like, I love this dude's concept as well. And, and, and suddenly it dawned on me, you're meant to be a jazz drummer. Yeah, yeah. That's what you're going to do. Yeah. And I was just going to say, so where are you at with your own playing at this point? I'm just not, you're, You've got a practice pad and some sticks it. still and that's I'm it. I'm interested in drums, but yeah, I'm yeah, not yeah. having... So you're listening out <clears> for them, but you haven't progressed to actually playing. Making a decision, yeah, yeah. and it just yeah. hit me like that, bang, do it. And I talked to my parents about it, got out of the apprenticeship, and went and worked on an um, uh, orchard grafting roses for a year, bought and uh, saved up to buy a drum kit, and came straight down to Wellington to get lessons off Bud Jones because I talked to Bruno Lawrence about what he, I said I'm going down, you know, what do you reckon, who should I go to and he said go to Bud so I went straight to Bud and I did five years with Bud just doing snare drum, I didn't want the kit to learn the kit um, so I just did five years of snare drum and got my chops on the snare drum so I could do rolls like he went for sailor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and what's happening in Wellington? What are you doing? Are you working? Like, to, um, like you're getting drum lessons, but what are you doing? Uh, well, because of my sort of Hawke's Bay and just my upbringing, I suppose, coming from more um, farming family, mm. and my father's very uh, practical, I had quite a few skills for a young guy, and so I went straight to, and I had my licence and everything, so I went straight to, I got a job where I was equipment officer for the hospital, which just meant that when they bought properties and people vacated quite often, there was a heap of stuff left, because a lot of these people were really old, and my job was to get the skip, take it down there, and go through it all, chuck it in the skip, apart from stuff that could be of use to me, like mm. furniture and so on. And <clears throat> I had these two huge buildings that I could chuck the stuff in and so I did that I was easy man and I uh, had a room where I could practice so I was doing four to six hours practice there a day and um, going and doing the work which was really easy <laughs> mm. just take a chair up to that office or to swap beds here at this person's place or do this or do that and um, started doing my lessons and I'd been playing a year when I met Stuart and we decided to start playing together and get a group together so I was 20 when that happened mm. basically and what's what's the scene like for you in Wellington and to, like are you out like oh, I'm going to all the games I was going to say you me, must be going and checking out things and what's all um, the time you know, but you see back then it was um, what's happening 1860 flyers. band the 1860 band I went and saw here yeah, definitely, and uh, but the, the, um, oh man, there was like so many groups I can't even remember them all. But I did get to see like I didn't get to see Human Instinct. Mm. I got to see um, I was listening to Dragon before they put a f their first album out. Um, I saw um, Living Force. I saw. Um, Pretty sure I saw Space Space Farm. I think I saw Ticket. I saw all those groups maybe once, mm. just before they're all about to actually 
fall yeah, apart. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I dug it, but that's not jazz. No. And 1860 band wasn't jazz, so I wasn't it was hearing the nearest jazz out of all out of those all things. Of but yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, it's not. so I just had to do listen to my own records. I bought all. I had like 150 ECM albums mm-hmm. within two years of mm. getting to Wellington, and that that was my sort of source. Yeah. for inspiration and what I need to do on the drums and how I was to go about it. But when I met Stuart, we very quickly worked out a kind of a, a formula for what we imagined our music should be, and that was, you know, that we've got to write our own stuff mm. and we've got to get our own sound, you know, really important, and we've got to put records out mm. and we've got to gig. And there was a lot of, you know, and I agreed with all of it, and we went, got finally got a group together where we rehearsed every night. Mm, mm. And I still do my four to six hours practice. It was getting up to 10 hours at times, you know, and just devoted myself to knowing that it's not a game. I've got to put in, like, essentially my 10,000 hours Mm, mm. and get it in as quick as possible. Mm. And we've got to get out there and do it because it's going to be my life. And it's it's not just a little dream. Mm, mm. It's actually going to happen. I'm going to make it happen. Mm. Um, And that's what happened. <clears throat> and the, by the time the Primitive Art Group finished, all of us were, in my opinion, it was only seven years, really accomplished musicians yeah, yeah. in every way. Like, we could all arrange, we could all write, mm. we could all read. Swapping, <clears throat> you know, playing on more than one instrument, yeah, yeah. A lot of that. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I didn't so yeah, much, yeah, yeah, yeah. to be honest, um, because I was, I was making my own drums, yeah. and I was using calfskin on everything at that point. So I was learning how to lap drums, I was collecting wood blocks and cowbells and anything. Yeah, yeah. Old cymbals. Yeah. A massive amount of it, uh, vintage stuff. And, I mean, obviously you learn a lot from talking to other players, you learn a huge amount from, from listening and from practising, but, and I guess from reading liner notes to records, but what else are you reading and taking on? In terms of uh, well, when I was, self-educating yourself with music, um, when I when I first got into music, the first thing I did, apart from buying albums, I, I was buying New Musical Express, Rolling Stone, yeah. and it was one another. I can't remember what it was. I was buying those every time they came out mm-hmm. and read them from one end to the other, which meant that when an album came out, like Horses, Big Rave, Horses mm-hmm. comes out, I go and buy it. Blue Oyster Cult, Big Rave on one of theirs, was it Mutants and something, and or Secret Treaties, and buy that, and they were getting some pretty diverse records in mm. there as well as my jazz stuff, and I bought Leonard Skinner, and I still love all those albums, I, I think they're all really good, mm. um, and I still play them, but... Um, I'd read Downbeat and New uh, Jazz Journal, which was the, the only real proper mags around. Mm. So I'd either buy them or get them somehow. Um, maybe they're in the library, but I tried to keep up on that. Mm. Any, as you say, like any anything actually, mm. Mm. anything. Just soak it up. Talk to lots of guys. Roger Sellers and I became really close friends. I just drill him <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. what was happening in London and I knew all the people that he knew mm. and I was bringing up names he'd even forgotten about <clears throat> so that was quite cool and so you know and then when the the first main jazz group that, that came to Wellington 
once I'd arrived was uh, Eberhard Weber came out. He was the bass player. He had John Marshall, who was the drummer for Soft Machine, mm. on drums. He had Charlie Mariano on saxophones, who was a Ming who played with Mingus, and Rain and Bruning House on keyboards. So it was a pretty gr big mm. group, and the mm. Goethe Institute were bringing them out, and they're at the, the peak, and they're an ECM group. And I heard them, and I realised now we're talking. This is this is really serious stuff. Mm, mm, mm. <laughs> it's like, okay, that's the, the standard. I'm finally hearing a proper jazz band that's going off and they're not playing standards or any of that stuff. I, mm. There's no swing in it. It's a whole vibe, but it's most definitely jazz. Mm. And um, really good, beautiful mm. stuff. Um, but most people didn't, in Wellington, when I, for the, just about my whole life, not so much these days, but for the first 10 years, there's only a few, the Primitive Art Group and a few others, where no one played new music. Mm. So any concepts of new jazz, <clears throat> people were playing fusion or they were playing kind of bebop stylings. Yeah, yeah. It's all that most people were up to doing. And so anything other than that, there was only us. But we'd learnt through... Uh, the Art Ensemble of Chicago and the AACM, those, the Chicago guys, about collectives. So we took that on board big time. And so we created our own collective as such so that there was up to about maybe 20 musicians who mm. participated mm. in various stuff that we did. And we organised um, uh, festivals. We could get people from all over to come and start learning. And, that, and that's kind of stayed with you, like that that sort of model. Like you go off yeah. and do lots of other things, but I'm thinking like you know Razor Blades, Village of the Idiots, and one-off festival things you've done. There was the Zappa thing the other year. You know, like there's that idea of a big collective, or you joining in with you I know, don't sort of other um, people. Create the collective so much no, 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 no. But that Jeff, idea of being Jeff, part of it. Um, Jeff yeah. and Dan do. Yeah, uh, and I'm more than happy to be there. Yeah, of course. But I, yeah. have, I had we've had our day where we were organising everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not so. <laughs> and now with technology, I'm behind because I don't use computers and everything as such. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I'm not interested, so uh, I just am more than happy to contribute, and I'll just do my best in that way. Yeah, yeah. When you say you're not interested, is that um, in part at least because of this rigid? Um, kind of rehearse, personal rehearsal structure you've got down, this idea of practising and, and listening back to stuff you're doing, like, would that get in the way, modern technology? <clears throat> oh, or, modern, uh, modern technology. <laughs> whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, when you No, I've just, uh, the way it's turned, worked out, <clears throat> I've just been re I've negligent yeah. in terms of... Getting, oh, no, going, I'm, I'm, getting on board yeah. when I could have because when I was doing my apprentice, uh, printing apprenticeship I, halfway through that we flew to Auckland apprentices from all over and we were introduced to the computer mm. and the idea would be it was blatantly obvious that soon hot metal the old way of printing was going to go which yeah. I'd spent my three years learning yeah. and loving it <coughs> that's why I was into it because I loved the whole concept of the offset printing <clears throat> and it became very clear that soon it was going to go to photo set and that all my skills would be for nothing in a funny way mm -hmm. and that, that it was going to all be on the computer <clears throat> I started playing music I was against computers as such te that technology mm. little did I know that it was how big it was going to go mm. but 
I've stuck with it actually. Uh, and another part of it is way down the track after I've been playing for a long time, um, well actually 10 years, I realised that at this point I'm making my living from music. I'm sometimes doing seven gigs a week. Mm. Um, my life is very contained within the kind of music vibe. Relationships are always difficult because I'm never around. Um, I started thinking, hang on a minute, I mean I'm totally dedicated as a musician, but I also want a life. And I realised that I need something else. I need the yin and the yang kind of vibe. I need something else to offset my absolute 100% dedication to music mm. and I ended up uh, I was going around the, co the south coast a lot so that was kind of started in many ways <clears throat> but I finally went and worked on my uncle's farm at the age of 29 for a break and suddenly a new world opened up I'd forgotten, not so much forgotten, but it re I was reminded of just how much fun a farm can be and how much there's to learn from it. And get it was a challenge to get back to learning how to do all the things on a, that mm. you do on a farm. Mm. So 25 years later, I, I my in terms of what I have, in my achievements in my life, I'm, I'm proud of the fact that I can actually shear sheep and I can shear a horse and do it well. I've been paid for both of them. You know, at times I've got jobs, so those achievements are now just as important as, say, playing with Mike Knock. Mm, so, mm, mm. But that turned everything around because I then got into hunting, and then I really just spent half my life in the bush, and um, then then I've slowly, and then I got the batch out of the beach, and so I slowly weaned myself off, and it's always just been like this, so that I've had these two sides, mm. and they're so complementary because mm. it means I quite fit. It, you know, when yeah, you go yeah. farming, I have to get you get fit real quick. Yeah, yeah. And, so that's uh, a match fitness for, for drumming that you are acquiring. I never had and to worry. vice versa. But and sometimes yeah, yeah. I get a bit unhealthy if I've been like sure. really going for it for a year. Uh, by the time I get to Christmas, I might have I might have done a lot of gigs, and I'm actually a bit tired. Yeah. So I'd have to go down there. The first couple of days would be hell, but suddenly it all comes right. But at night, I'm doing practice. Mm. So I take, even took a drum machine down there and I do all my practice to a drum machine to get my time really sorted out. And um, so it was a great, I'd do six hours practice a day. Mm. So it was actually, I wasn't like g g moving away from music. Mm. But I started going to the farm more and more till in the end I went down, the last time I was there was two and a half years. And in fact, at one point I was managing it while they went on holiday. And he trusted me to do that. And I thought, well, you've come a long way if he trusts you with a whole farm. And they're going away for two months, so that to me is, uh, mm. and it gave me confidence. It gives you confidence, that sort of thing, because mm. it's scary shit sometimes. And there's no room for just suddenly walking away. You've actually got to follow through whatever you started. You've got to follow through, even if it's snowing. You yeah, know, yeah, I don't yeah. Know it's, it's no, just, no, I can see what you mean about the complementary. Um, you know the 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 kind of um, synergies between the two. You've got to like with the style of drumming that you mostly, I guess, are known for and do. You know, it's grounded in huge technique and understanding of time to then step outside of that and improvise. And what you're saying is, it's kind of the same with the the farm stuff. Is you've got to actually know how to do all this stuff, and then when the elements throw things at you, 
got to deal with it. You've got to deal with it, which yeah. could mean some improvisation, but that, but it comes from a grounding of essentially knowing what to do or what not to do, yeah. in theory. <laughs> and then... No, it's tr- that's true. It's, yeah. uh, and I, I just... The other thing that uh, I found that I've... Uh, I noticed that if I'd spent six days in the bush with my dog, which I was doing at a point where I was just obsessed with it, it happened for about 10 years from when I was 30 to 40, um... Every time I came back for a gig, I'd be just so hyped up. Yeah. I had so much to say. Yeah. And I realised yeah. that that's, you need something to say. And if you're living in the city and you're doing bugger all, you might have bugger all to say, you know, no matter yeah. how much practice you're doing. Yeah. But if you're out there and you've got done something and I've got, at the end of each day I've got a yarn, one yarn, it's like, then I feel like I can get stuck into my music because mm. it is a language. Mm. Um, it's not about notes, you know. I mean, these are cliche things, but the, uh, it's not. I, I'm trying to help provide a story mm. with whoever I'm playing with, that's for sure. Mm, mm. Especially if we're playing the more contemporary stuff. Yeah. So, when do you feel that music, for you as a player, when do you feel that you first really click into what you want to be doing? Is it sort of midway through primitive art group stuff I guess or before that or or because I say that one more time well what I'm trying to get at I know I understand this can sound like quite a trite question no. but I want to know when you feel I'm heading in the right direction you know I'm 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 achieving something with my playing I've got a long way to go it's a journey but you you feel it was the day I heard those two records and I decided to be a jazz drummer yeah it actually was that's the first yeah, yeah. I met it's a classic man I uh, I was so uh, once I decided that's it, I'm a jazz drummer. Mm. Hi, I'm Anthony Donaldson. What do you do? I'm a jazz drummer. <laughs> that's what I was saying. And I've yeah, got I don't a, have a kit, but no, oh, no, I did at this. Right. I did <laughs> by this point. But yeah. uh, I, um, I got it. I was hitching from uh, Hastings to Wellington, and this dude picked me up. He worked for Radio New Zealand. And we had a talk over the time, and, and I must have been just over the top enthusiastic that he organised a meeting with the then fledgling uh, jazz school. Well, it hadn't even happened, there was a, just a music school, but it had a jazz mm, mm. Um, to see if I could get in. I didn't know what was going on, but the phone call was made and they said, We've got a chance. And so I went along and uh, not sure what's coming up, but there were five tutors in the room. And what was happening was they were auditioning for students, but I didn't I didn't know that. So and they and they were asking me about it, and then one of them said, "How long have you been playing for?" And I went three three months. <laughs> and uh, three of the people just walked out of the room immediately. And then someone one of them came up and was like, "Okay, okay, so really you want lessons, perhaps?" <laughs> yeah. And I said, "Yeah, totally." <laughs> you know, didn't understand it. But uh, so, but I was just confident right from the word go. I knew damn well what I was doing because those, um, the, all the music I'd listened to up to then had set me up because I didn't because I wanted to play jazz and I wanted to be a jazz drummer, so to mm, speak. Mm. I wasn't giving up. One of my still my favourite albums for inspiration is the Hendrix Live at the Fillmore mm. and the Hot Rats. Depending what group, I, I you know there's a, a couple of groups where I'm. You know, it's that type of drumming that mm. Buddy Miles does that is the, where I want to be as my starting point, perhaps. Well, they're both good examples, those records of 
you can see and hear the jazz in them, right? Like, or or, or that jazz. No, I can't hear any jazz. Well, the jazz exists enough, for those players, is what I mean. There's one little patch in that uh, where Hendrix, the band, goes a little bit free, mm. and the drummer does this little thing on the snare drum, and you realise that he's got. Uh, a background that's it's not that's what I mean jazz, you can hear it in the players some, uh, he's done marching bands and he's mm, got, done mm. something it's a beautiful little snare thing right mm. at the end of a tune it's, it's actually petering out but um, the Zappa one uh, all those drummers uh, are session drummers who are playing to exactly to what's going on and they're quite busy and just beautiful beautiful yeah. so quite often um, in these days when I'm trying to do a, a slightly more uh, kind of rock beat perhaps uh, I might think a little bit about how those drummers played that music because it's they get stuck in but mm. they're really directing the music because yeah, the truth is Hot Rats is just a, it's only Zapper and Ian Underwood been mm. um, overdubbed a million times mm. the bass player and the drummer come in and play the live tracks but then they do all the rest mm, mm. but they want the group to sound good and it's like a live group and that's what blows me out the drummers play like they're actually playing in a band mm, mm. Mm. so no I'm happy I've been happy with my drumming most of the time one little patch in the six volts I had trouble I was probably getting I don't know but I started slowing down here and there and it was just about becoming an issue really and I couldn't understand what was happening and it was dri driving me mental because no drummer wants to be mm. have issues with time mm. uh, but that's when I went got the drum machine took it down the farm and sorted things out of it and um, it's not really an issue anymore mm. Mm. Six Volts is um, the band that, that operates in and of itself but also played um, on the records with the front lawn yeah. So, yeah yeah what was that experience like um, the front lawn one was a great, awesome experience at Heck, uh, because one Don had a, was a named player in, mm. in the, in the uh, music scene. Uh, the primitive art group and From Scratch, for some reason, were always being compared. Right. Uh, but I saw them as an extremely professional, slick venture, mm. and I saw us as a, um, heaps more. Um, what's the word? Chaotic. <laughs> no, no, uh, no, more um, uh, earthy. Yeah, organic. But uh, yeah, we were, we weren't, uh, we didn't wish to and uh, to be kind of the way they were doing it. But we were for some reason compared with them both, I suppose, because we're supposedly both doing kind of new stuff. Yeah, yeah. Because um, uh, limbs, a lot of dance companies, especially limbs, were right behind us mm -hmm. they loved what we would kind of you know that the dancers were right in there but um, and the six volts are sweet but so that when Don asked us to play um, of course we wanted to do it because we'd both been over to Edinburgh Festival where we'd won best music award or something and they'd won best show mm. I'm not sure what it, you know and um, we both had come back pretty feeling pretty good and uh, it just seemed a natural thing, I think, that for them who had this little idea, uh, Jennifer, uh, Harry and Don, they didn't need to beef it up for the album, so they brought mm. us in. Mm. It was the first time where we'd been actually, had, where someone tells you what to do. Mm. 
So that was a real, uh, our egos got thrown around a bit there for a while until everything settled. Uh, because, but we're, because we're professionals, we, our main aim was to Deliver. make them happy. Mm. Uh, so we all did what we were asked to do. So um, we had to make the assumption that Don knew exactly what he was doing. And um, by the end of it, all of us were pretty happy. Because it, it, it's got a, a real... Um you know, a real spirit to it, that album. Particularly the first album has got... Um, the second album's of no consequence. No, no, it's... Whatsoever. I don't know what happened there. It's like left the first over, album is, leftovers from the first album is how it, you know, or whatever, like a, co yeah. a coda that... The first album is, is a real piece of magic, I think. Yeah, it's a classic. To a me, classic it's album. never mentioned that stage. No. I hardly ever see it mentioned, but to my... my feeling of what I know of New Zealand music, I, I most definitely put it in as a classic album. I agree. And um, and it I, feels more authentically Kiwi than a lot of things that get talked up as being great New Zealand albums. I don't know that, why I'm surprised yeah. it's never mentioned. <clears throat> but I do know that it was yeah. thrashed in, in London. Right. So uh, all the, any anyone who's living in London from New Zealand around that time had that album. Mm, so, because mm. uh, so, uh, I guess I arrived to it quite late, you know, and you know I probably didn't hear it until well half a decade after it existed or, or so. So I, I certainly was, you know, I went backwards from the Mutton Birds to the other things right. Don had done, put it that way, and um, and. Uh, that Front Lawn album is, is probably the one that I go back to the most of any of the things he's done now because it's got great songwriting from, from him, but the playing on it feels very, uh, you know, I guess it, I guess you telling me that makes sense. It's, it is precise and spot on, but it, but it feels joyous and improvised and, you know, lively, and which I guess is all the things a good professional musician will do. They will deliver... But, and, but this, and also, the six volts, you know, still managed to sound like them. Yes. Yeah. As a whole. Yeah. You know, even though it was tweaked right back. Sure. Um, see, I had problems on one tune, I remember, where, because I'm so into the New Orleans funk beats and the whole concept of syncopation, and um, the, there was there was one tune that to be... You know, it's a basic, just a, a small little rock out piece. Mm. And I keep putting in the, putting in this wee skip mm. every two bars at the end of the, you know, on the four or the end of four, just a, a little thing there that went. And he keep telling me to, don't do it. Mm. But when I just played straight, I just thought, oh, this doesn't, this is such a shit groove. Yeah. <laughs> um, and but and to be fair, I, I did think that, and it probably was, except. It, the shit groove isn't actually a shit groove, it's like everything, it's the way you play it. And I hadn't played heaps of rock music, so I would sus suspect that my beat wasn't like a deep groove in the pocket, mm. white rock beat, mm. which is just tough for me. But I, and I, uh, but that I, you know, but and I'm not allowed to play the. So that was a uh, that was a funny little thing for me. That, I think it was the first thing for me mm. in that session where suddenly, hmm, <clears throat> okay, uh, and I had to really sweat blood to kind of make sure this kind of happens. Mm. Mm. Uh, but and it did. 
and around that time, who else are you? Who else are you sort of working with, of either of note or just um, you know? Nobody. In your in your journey, I mean, you played in the spines <laughs> early on, didn't you? Yeah, that's a bit later. One of, oh, yeah, but that's a bit later. The um, no, maybe it's not. I don't know. Actually, maybe you're right. I feel yeah, like I it's did. kind of early on. I mean, in the journey of the spines. Yeah, fairly uh, early in the Andy, Andy, Craig, me, and John. Right. I yeah, did a couple yeah, of gigs. Yeah. Quite a few yeah. rehearsals. I yeah. Think, like twenty tunes. Yeah. <clears throat> um, I would have been. What happened when the six volts and that front lawn all around that and to ruin to that, ru- ruin yeah. that. So, it, and it, and it, if the truth had been known, and it actually run its course, um, because inside that group there was two sort of factions growing, and one kind of wanted to carry on playing slightly more out, we'll say, mm. vibe of mm. some sort, mm. and the other were heading, wanting to play a lot more sort of straight rock, and it was we could have done it actually, mm. but it just came at a time where. And suddenly it, uh, there was tension there, and it was best just to let everyone go. So Don ended up going up and joining. Uh, sorry, Dave Long went up and joined Don. Mm. Uh, Neil went to Auckland and started doing his own thing. And David, Janet, Steve got a new group together, and I went farming. <coughs> and when I came back, see what everyone's up to. Um, but the, th- oh, the first thing that happened was that I started getting um, people wanting me to write music for their films and so on. Right. <laughs> and I was like, oh no, really? Uh, sure. And um, but and it was back then where it was still real to real tape. My brother and that had just started a wee studio. Uh, the use of computers wasn't in there quite yet. Not with the, uh, like the bigger one places might have. So. I did about four or five, one of them 45 minutes long, where I just spent half my, you know, I don't know how long, four months, writing, trying to write, and compose some 40 minutes worth of music for a full-on dance show, what the big one was in Auckland. Um, To this day, I still don't understand how, why people would pick me. You know, I wasn't known as a composer. Yeah. When I say about, when I was talking about the um, six uh, primitive art group, and I said we could all arrange yeah, yeah, composing yeah. that. What I meant by that was, for me, uh, yeah, I'm not going to write three part blooming part charts for the guys or anything. I, what what I meant by that is I came up with a melody yeah, and yeah. a concept on how the band could play that melody. Yeah, yeah. Um, and when they're playing it, I might make suggestions so that by the end of it, after we've rehearsed it heaps, uh, and I, I feel, yep, that's what I kind of had in mind it's, it's sorted but uh, to actually start writing stuff but uh, all we did was workshop yeah. stuff and overdone but it's, inter- it's interesting how that cinematic kind of quality was was there for all of the members of that group one way or another yeah. and that yeah, you they, know, yeah. Dave, Dave's gone off to do a lot of film composing and everybody's the, the, done the, it yeah yeah that's actually. right the other three create what, plan nine and they um do TV, film school, all sorts of things, like other music as well, but they, they do everything from like short little intro stings to full film scores. Yeah. 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 And then you've done bits and pieces too. 
um, yeah, it's quite it's quite interesting how all of that came from the one from the one group. All, all of uh, all of us were obsessed with um, film. Yeah, you know, and uh, the beginnings of the um, film festival sort of stuff. Like I remember, Dave Long went to from memory went to thirty films one year. Yeah, yeah, that's what people were doing, mm. and. Um, so we were totally obsessed, and I, when I first came to Wellington, I joined the Film Society, and uh, so film soundtracks, in many ways, are my, you know, sideline thing. Yeah. I love them. Yeah. Like Miles Davis, for instance, like, half of his music is, of what he's going to do, can be just about uh, come down to that album called uh, Lift of the Scaffold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where a director yeah. tells him, this is the scene, interpret it. Yeah. and they do it and yeah. suddenly Miles is do- you can hear in a silent way you can yeah, hear yeah, yeah. Um, you can hear yeah snatches of all sorts of things everything from he's going to yeah. do right yeah. up yeah, like even much further because there's some yeah. seriously interesting stuff a, on that album it's a cool album that. yeah, yeah. It it's, it's one of the one of the um, one of the first things I heard of his you know when I like I started off with his kind of the last stuff he did which is again just because of my age and when I came to it and then obviously Grab, kind of blue and birth of the cool. But then, very shortly after hearing those, it was it was that album, and then the In a Silent Way, Bitches Brew, that stuff. Yeah. No, it's a beautiful album. Yeah. It never gets mentioned. Yeah. It get, only gets mentioned in in relation. Yes, it's like it's like the front lawn. It's like the front lawn of Miles Davis yeah. albums. <laughs> the um, and uh, the Seven Samurai, I love. The, that was yeah. my favourite, and to the point where I ended up doing a sh- you know the. Um, a full show of that. Yes. Um, and funny enough, the music from Alphaville, which I plan to do one day. Right. I haven't got around to it yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, that's pretty awesome. So we're sort of we've sort of got to the late '80s, early '90s, rough, you know, roundabout how we've been talking. What what happens next for you? Because I, I mentioned this to you recently. Like I saw the razor blades and. Well, I moved to Wellington in 1995, and I saw the Razor Blades sometime in the sometime after that, in the maybe 96, 97, and at playing at Bodega, and I didn't even know what it was. I just oh, walked right. in, like I just right. walked in, and then someone said to me, oh, "I must have gone in with a friend," and then someone said to me, "Oh, you know, th- these guys play here and around town a bit and stuff, and these are this is this person and this is this person and." was you and Otis playing drums and I have a vague memory that I might have actually talked to you sometime shortly after that gig when I was working in a music store and I was working in Tandy's and I feel like you came into that store and I sort of gushed to you that I'd seen you play and I thought it was great right and but I know I know that more recently I, I have said to you that was quite a eureka moment for me in terms of me arriving in Wellington and seeing cool music. So how did that? So talk talk me through that sort of the sort of genesis of that band and. Well, they all all around that patch. It all, I've gone farming yeah. from about yeah. Christmas through to about April. I've come back, and I'm ready to get something happening. And so we got a group together, the Razorblades, but it was just a full quartet, and we were doing. We'll call, we'll call them covers, but they weren't because we were, as far as I'm aware, we we're the only ones playing them. Yeah. But they were sort of color play tunes yeah. that I'd found scores for, or uh, we're doing quite a bit of ornette. And um, uh, 
various things. And we had quite a few gigs that all happened on, uh, that we managed to get, so it was like about a Thursday, Friday, Saturday night sort of thing. And um, it was just going along. And I just thought, nah, man, we've, I'm sort of back to where I was when I'm just doing, I'm playing kind of club stuff, background kind of get paid. And I just thought, nah. And the group wasn't really rehearsing or anything. So I said to them, like, look, guys, I've got an idea. And that is I want to be boss of this group and I want to change it. And I want you to give me six months to see if I can do it. And we'll take, you know, and we'll take it from there. And they said, okay, let's go for it. So I got Otison on drums and I got um, Scott Towers on saxophone and this other guy, Gareth, or Garth, on clarinet, but I've been listening to these, I've got tens cassettes of the stuff I've been listening to in the last month, mm. and I noticed that obviously Toby Lang must have been in there as well, because he's on quite a bit of it. Um, so I built the group up and got rid of all the stuff, and we started workshopping and getting a repertoire of their own stuff together, except then I picked what if we're not if we're going to play someone else's tune, which we, I'm only too happy to do, if it's a goodie, I picked um, Jelly Roll Morton Jungle Blues and Nightmare by Artie Shaw, and that was they were kind of just to brighten things up and pull it back a bit from the stuff that the other stuff, which was getting quite often was a little bit more energetic, you know, and a mm. bit more groove based. And mm. looking back, there's a lot of Bitches Brew kind of vibe in there, perhaps. Or, mm. Uh, even Can, with a bigger version of Can or something, but it was all about the grooves. And um, and that was going along really, really well. And uh, unfortunately for, for that band and me at that point, uh, I'd made a commitment to my partner at the time that I was going to, we were going to, at the end of the year, have saved three and a half grand each, and we were going to go down south and buy some horses and travel around the South Island and she'd already started saving so it got around my birthday where we did this gig <laughs> and uh, no, on my birthday we record, my brother recorded two nights because those were going to be the last nights I had to kind of say to the band I can't do any more gigs man mm. I've, I'm in the shit a bit my partner's got three grand <laughs> and I've actually got nothing and uh, we've agreed on this so uh, I tidied up my affairs in Wellington realised that if this is going to work and I'm going to have to do my bit I left Wellington went straight to the farm and worked there for uh, I think four months so that when my partner came in March she had three and a half grand and I was able to say hi I've got three and a half grand mm. So we're back on track and uh, everything was fine and it worked out. But then we had to live in the bush for nine months, I think, and then go and buy a whole bunch of horses and do that trip, which took two years out of my life. And when I came back, which is around 2000, that's when I started doing those film festival things. Yeah, Village of the family, Idiots. And... Well, Family Mallet was the first one, Po Face, yep. and then the Village Idiot stuff. Yeah. 
and that's why and which just connect right back to you talking about me being wanting to do leading stuff and so on because yeah. there's so much work in organising those things no one has any idea how much work's in that and getting something like that especially when it's rehearse, uh, workshop stuff a lot of it yeah you're not just throwing charts around yeah, yeah. Um, that uh, having done so many I think I did 10 of them I just sort of feel like man I don't know if I've got that sort of in me anymore mm. and things have changed too mm. a lot of things have changed so of course I've got older for a start the rehearsal room's kind of vibe is a little bit different these days um, it's very difficult to kind of rehearse twice a week yeah life's different yeah you know? um, so and that's always put me off. I just think I don't. Th I just don't know. If I, but uh, it looks like I am doing something for the film. First. I'm actually doing the, the village idiots at the jazz festival again. So yeah, I think I'm getting talked into it, and I'm thinking, okay, <laughs> why not yeah, give it a yeah, go? Because yeah. Otis is back. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, he's just got back recently, right? Yeah, yeah. And everyone else has been talking about it for ages. And I just think, okay, let's maybe it could be fun actually. Yeah. Um, let's give it a go. We've got five months to get it together. So the thing, the other thing that around that, when you mentioned the festival stuff in the early 2000s, I guess for me that's when I start writing reviews for the paper, maybe end of 2001 I think. So I, I remember one of the jazz festivals, uh, a Village Idiots thing was one of the f first things I might have written about. And so I see you and you're playing again, but around that time the space is going and um, I start to see and meet people like Chris O'Connor and Ricky Gooch and and can sort of see and feel some of your influence in some of the players around town. Well, what we used to do, because I can talk heaps mm. and, and have actually done my homework in terms of how... The jazz, if it's going to talk about drums or jazz or anything, I've got all the books, mm. I've got all mm. the I've done my homework, so it comes to me pretty quickly. And so, what we used to do is I'd get use of the studio um, in Arthur Street that we had for 21 years. I had it from like five o'clock onwards because they'd all go home. Mm. And so, people would turn up like Chris, Ricky, Otis, they were the main ones. Rick Cranston, I think, turned up briefly at the end, where they knew I was going to be there every night. So they would ring and, are you there? Yep. Yep, come round. And so they'd all come round and we'd all just hang and I'd sort of, we'd just talk. And as soon as they mentioned something, I'd say, well, hang on. And I could go straight to the records, get it out, put it on, and we'd listen to it. That would lead on to something else. Mm. It would lead on to something else. And, and we'd go and we'd spend a whole night just hanging and talking. We never did much playing, if ever. And um, just hung, really. Mm -mm. And people played. So Otis would try, he was always trying to blow me up with some new drum and so he introduced me to uh, Morgan Argren. And I remember just, you know, that straight away I had to go and buy the album and, and started, here's a new guy I can listen to. Um, always looking for new stuff, eh? All the time. Not because I'm uh, don't feel confident in myself. I feel totally confident. It's just that I do love listening to music and I mm. love hearing new mm. stuff. And if mm. someone's got a little thing that that's 
particularly good, well, it might be nice to know, uh, maybe I can utilise it in some way. Mm. I never copy anyone, but, um, you know. See, I've never been into, like, the whole idea of transcribing solos and that, man, I just think that's bad juju. It's so bad. And uh, what I used to do was put on a record, turn the lights out, completely immerse myself in it, to the point where I'm actually become the drummer virtually, right down to I can picture that I'm, because uh, quite often you, if the hi-hat's on the left-hand side, I realise right, so I'm standing behind him. Mm. Or if it's on the other side, I write, I'm in the audience. and So I could get a clear picture of what he, And listen to the, what he's doing, then I'd go to my drums, and I'd play, and I'd try and see, oh, so Ed Blackwell, very melodic drums, so I'd go and play melody, try and fuck around playing melodies on the drums. Uh, he's doing polyrhythms and everything, so see if he can put in a little bit of this, bit of that. And the, By never knowing exactly what I was doing, of course, after 20 years, got my own thing happening. Mm. <laughs> and so and it's happened like that with every aspect. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, I've listened to Tony Williams a million times, and uh, but you hardly ever hear any Tony Williams in my playing, except maybe here and there, like that Jonathan Crayford album. Mm. There's uh, a tune on it, Wall of Jazz. Uh, I feel like I'm kind of there's a Tony Williams thing there for sure and mm. I wasn't actually intending it to be but uh, having listened to it heaps if you listen to enough stuff it's going to come out in some way I think and also like what I was going to say and what, what that's all, all of that is making me think is that um, maybe that's kind of your um, thing as a kind of teacher too and inf- maybe an informal teacher but you know, I've watched Chris O'Connor and Ricky Gooch particularly play a lot, Otis a bit too way back, but, but those two guys I've watched play a lot, and I think they're both fantastic. And I don't think they sound like you at all, but I know that they've taken a lot from you. Yeah, and you know? I've taken heaps of them ex- too. I was going to say, you, yeah, of course. That's why we're I would imagine because so, like, because um, that's why you've hung out, and also because they're fucking good, right? Yeah. But, but, yeah, all three of you guys have your own distinct sound, yeah. But you can see how you've shared ideas, some similar influences, you've turned each other on to different things. Totally. Yeah, which is really totally. cool, right? I mean, it's a, you can cut to the chase, you know, if Ricky's got such a good groove, you know, what's he listen? what does he, you know, and I know he listens to heaps of, obviously, heaps of black music, mm. uh, but, like, it goes, he's listening to Motown and he's listening to all sorts, which I've done, well, not so much Motown, but I've listened to a hell of a lot of New Orleans funk, like mm. the meters, and that's where both of us can kind of yeah, join yeah. hands there and, yeah. and, or, actually, Hendrix, Light at the Fillmore, you know, all that resonates. I find, I mean... You know, I know you're extremely well listened. I mean, I'm, I'm, I sort of know Chris's as well, but I think Ricky's one of the, certainly, you know, it's hard to kind of stump him with stuff. He's aware of a lot. You know, he's yeah. very, and if he isn't, he'll go and find, like if you, you can put him onto stuff. If you've mentioned, I know I've mentioned a couple of things and he's like, oh, what's that? And he'll ask a bit more and then he'll come back to you and he's, you yeah. know, he's checked it out. Yeah. Like, and he's seen, he's seen something in it or, you know, whatever, yeah. Well, the internet's really good now, I mean, yeah. for that. Yeah. That's the one thing I will say for it. It's so cool that you can just think up and uh, have an idea, go on, and you can just, it's all there. Mm. Um, that, I think that's awesome. Actually. Oh, you mentioned to me, um, was it George Russell, George Russell, Russell Sextet, when I talked to you on the phone last year for that 
um, jazz festival article. I got straight off the phone from you and looked it up because I hadn't heard it. Electronics and, and yeah, 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 stuff yeah, nature, yeah. yeah. It's, one, it's, it's my desert island. I, jazz I know, record. I know, and it's amazing. And I, I listened to it a couple of days ago. I've listened to it, you know, quite a few times. But I got straight off the phone. I was like, I need to look that up, like, uh, you know, because that's that's that great power, isn't it? If someone like you tells me an album like that meant a whole lot to them, then even if I don't like it at the end of it, I want to listen to it. Yeah. You know, I want to hear, I want to try and hear what you got out of it. And not only was I able to try to kind of do that. I, I, I liked it enough to want to listen to it a whole lot more, you know. Like, but yeah, I wouldn't have. It's an incredible album that one. Just considering how young some of the guys are on there, I think the guitarist's only eighteen years old. Mm. Two year Ripple, he's uh, it's defining moment. And of course, the, the the compositions on that are really fantastic. Considering mm. the band's actually quite small. Mm. I think it's only a five-piece band. Yeah, it's really big, widescreen music, but... Six-piece band. It's a sextet, yeah, yeah. So, but it sounds like a, an orchestra. Yeah. yeah, it was just, yeah, his, his uh, composition, his skills are fantastic. Yeah. Absolutely fantastic. So you keep playing jazz, you keep researching jazz, you have done some lectures on jazz and records and the drum kit and various components around all of those things. Uh, you keep improvising around jazz and then a couple of years ago you joined a rock band so yeah out of nowhere it seems in the, in the context of all the playing you've done you join your first proper rock band uh just a couple of years ago teeth yeah now I, I i mean luke's been in and done the podcast and the story i i because i didn't know this i think i would have seen teeth play a few times and then he told me and the record came out in fact and then he told me that you had sort of you'd auditioned for Phoenix Foundation right. and didn't get that job but he clearly went fuck I need to play music with that guy so that's sort of the story right? Yeah, the, um, they were looking for, someone asked me who do you, who are the drummers around that, yeah. that could, you know, we're auditioning for drummers, who would they be? And um, I, we were discussing it, and I told them a couple of drummers that I thought possibly could work. And then me, Tom, and Ricky were having a hang, and we were discussing it a bit, and Ricky said, you should audition. And I was like, no way, man. And uh, then it occurred to me, actually, what would be quite good, actually, is to go along and audition, but one, because it's a challenge. Uh, two, you never know. And... That's how I kind of, you know, you've got to take chances. So I said, hey, actually, I'm in, I'm in for it. Uh, I hadn't actually listened to Phoenix a huge amount, so I had to quickly go and get a whole bunch of albums and um, have a quick listen and sit, just quickly try and work out what's kind of going on and it became quite clear that it's really well rehearsed and that I'm not going to get any of these things really together in that time so I just went along with an open mind and let's see what happens and they're all great guys so it was you know I felt totally relaxed and off we went and from what I my understanding is that um, we played an intro to one of their tunes for 20 minutes <laughs> unbeknown to me yeah, yeah. but that's actually what was happening and in that time um, I thought 
okay, so we're doing this, and I put in various things to show them that, you know, I can do this, not so much skiting exactly, but just saying, putting in fills, doing this, doing that, uh, presenting ideas, you know, um, and at the end of it, it was all all good, but the truth was, uh, just the way things worked out, Chris auditioned earlier, and it became very clear just pretty much instantly, actually, Chris is the dude. Mm. So that was cool. And then I got a phone call from uh, Luke saying, would you like to do something? I said, yeah, love to. And um, so him, me and Mike Fab started playing, but Mike was too busy, so then it dropped down to just him and I having a couple of rehearsals till we both kind of agreed, let's get Tom. And... So we, Tom came on board and we started then being able to work on the tunes, but there was always talk of getting another person in. And um, there was various suggestions, and I put some forward, and that, but Luke wasn't, no, and another person would come up and I'd be like, mm, I'm not sure about that. But then we were working on the Lab Coats uh, album, and I'd been working with Dave Long quite a bit, and suddenly it dawned on me, actually, Dave probably isn't doing it any kind of band stuff maybe he might actually quite like to be mm. in this band so I went along to the next rehearsal and said I reckon what about Dave Long I reckon he could be perfect and Luke was like totally yes mm. do you reckon you'd do it and I said well he's not doing any he's doing all film stuff he might actually like to play some guitar uh, you know ring, ring him and so then Dave was totally in and so once Dave turned up, it was just suddenly uh, it all just fell into place. Mm, mm. Completely fell into place. And we rehearsed for about a year where Luke didn't have that many lyrics. So we were, but he was singing. <laughs> and so we worked out all these tunes, and, and yes, they were kind of complex at the beginning. And now when I look at it, that's very, very simple, really. But I had to get my head around a lot of things actually mm. and that was actually I'm playing rock now but no jazz no sort of syncopated mm. <laughs> kind of vibe uh, 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 except it's life has gone on yeah since your, those little, days. your little New Orleans thing is I not to be seen well in the no it can record. be it can be compared to yeah but compared to you know when you're talking about that story about yeah that's the true. front lawn and wanting yeah. to get it in there like now you can slip it in there, but it's, uh, it's it is about rock. Yeah, but the time's moved on, and it's not. I don't. No one's expecting me to play. They uh, mm. uh, are open, so I can put in more stuff. And mm. so I developed a drum kit specifically for teeth, where I use two hi hats, and um, bought all this whole set of cymbals specifically for the sound I was here going to hear. And what I imagined I was going to hear in teeth, so the cymbals are quite big and a lot of, uh, and they're all, uh, their tones are really clean, mm. uh, but the cymbals are quite thinnish, one or two of them are. Um, did a lot of work on my kit, and it had to be simple because 90% of the time you're going on stage to a kit that's already set up, so it's all about just quickly getting the stands and you can't have heaps of shit. So I've had to keep it down and try and play good rock that they will actually be happy to hear from mm. the drummer mm. and 
it's worked out really well and I'm so pleased that it's it happened and I'm so pleased I didn't get the gig in Phoenix because to me this is uh, this is better for the simple fact that it's a new group with a new idea Mm-mm. and so I can now I don't have to kind of like exactly fit into what's existing I'm actually able yeah. to create yeah, yeah. as much as anyone else the and, sound of teeth and that sound has evolved over the you know it's about three years yeah so four years took, so probably maybe, yeah 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 because I remember seeing one of uh, I think I think Luke said from the stage it was the second gig that I saw I mean I've watched you guys a few times but um it's to me it's an interesting band in that for many reasons in that you've got sort of two sets of generations of players and you and Dave have worked together previously and then obviously Tom and Luke are in a band together as well as being in teeth so you've got these two sets of and it retur- as you said it sort of returns Dave to like it's probably the closest thing it doesn't sound like the mutton birds but it's probably the closest thing to the mutton birds that he's done in terms of being in a two guitar pop rock band because he hasn't done that again since that um so there's all these, yeah, interesting, I mean, you're... And the fact that I play with, in every group I'm in, virtually, Tom's the bass player. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, no, we're pretty... Yes, well, he's Wellington's main bass player, isn't he? <laughs> One of them. He, uh, no, I'm, I'm absolutely thrilled that that all worked out. Yeah. And I want to do heaps more, and... Um, and you can I hear think... the sort of things like the Residents and Can and Zapperins, all those sorts of things I can hear that clearly you've listened to and have had some impact on you but don't come out in a lot of your other playing, you can hear no, that. I'm drawing from, I am drawing from a lot of other stuff. Yeah. Heaps of other stuff. Um, and quite a lot of con- you know, new, con- more contemporary stuff mm, too. Mm, mm. Um, the uh, Yes, no, it, and the, the thing is, uh, for me as a musician, it's, it's rounding things out really well to be able to play in a rock group, uh, get a different audience. Hmm. Uh, I, get, I don't like, you know, I want challenges, so here's the, 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 there was a massive challenge, and I want to make sure that I, by the end of it that I've accomplished, you know, something. Hmm. And that, so that uh, in terms of the history of rock, maybe Teeth could just... Get, it can be put in there now. When uh, see the six volts, all these record, uh, all these books that came out on the history of New Zealand rock music, and that never mentioned the six volts. And I assume that they assume that we that we were kind of like a jazz band, but the jazz community don't recognise us as a jazz band. Mm. We're just stuck in the centre of nowhere, and so mm. quite often we never get mentioned. Mm. And on the whole, I don't really give a shit. But on another thing, I think that's a bit sad. We kind of put all that work in. We were mm. really quite a big band at one point, mm. uh, and there's no real mention of it. People forget that we used to do uh, with the Primitive Art Group at that in, in, in the very early 80s. We'd be doing support, or someone would be we'd be uh, someone supporting us, and they'd be a punk band. Mm. So we weren't just like considered uh, the free jazz. Quite often we were just the crazy group that works quite well with punk bands and so mm. on, you know. Mm. Um, so to actually be playing rock, to be honest, it just all those early records are still in me. Here's a chance to have a wee crack at uh, getting a bit, some of that stuff out, which I haven't been able to do. And it's very rock oriented, of course. So those beats I've had to work, you know, 
work out my beats <laughs> and and I'm really happy with them they work really well and I'm learning how to play you know I learned how to play really simply mm. and yet get, get a deep groove because I'm into my deep grooves um, so yeah it came right at the right time and I'm absolutely chuffed for that, about that band mm. and just in the last couple of months this new group the Little Blast Orchestra which is eight piece bands doing the early 20s and 30s New Orleans stuff mm. and I'm loving that you I told me about that but you told me about it when it was you know I think on paper like right. it was just it was something that you, you were about to do, to do. so yeah, we've only done two yeah, gigs yeah. but the second gig was just well the first gig was great but the second gig we're, we've settled in a bit and um, I'm just loving it because I can drink, drag out my cowbells and wood blocks and all this and the rhythms that um, those early New Orleans rhythms and, and my, which I've developed my own headspace on all that as well anyway mm. I haven't had a chance to do it and finally so at the moment I'm feeling really good about my music because I've just got it's covering I'm covering so many sort of areas mm. all of it's kind of new music in some way even the mm. little blast orchestras because mm. uh, it's not specific yeah, to yeah. Um, 20s and 30s that's the sort of thing but the Mingus turns up in there it's, in evoke, it's evoking that era but a, well, pulling post, us forward a bit because we're not a bloody kind of... nostalgic band no 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 um, but there's a place for it and the one yeah. and the thing that I like about that one is that people dance and there's a, a you know it's happy vibe mm. stuff mm. which mm. I think is important as well yeah yeah it's playing my full on avant garde jazz stylings or teeth because teeth is uh, last gig I nearly died I put so much energy into it. <laughs> I fucking went for it. I thought I was going to have a heart attack at the end of the gig. Did you collapse or anything? Or you no, just no, mean, no. You, I just, you just... Thought, you've got one minute to go. You've got one minute. Come on, you can do it. You can do it. And then finally, when the gig was over, I was like, bloody hell. Wow. <sighs> Jesus. Yeah. Because uh, the drummer prior, the support band, well, not support band, but the band on first, Yeah. Um, he played so well and so hard. And I just thought, shit, you know, that's... That's real. That's that's how I should be playing, Ant. You can't sit back. You're not Neil Young's band, you know. And <laughs> sort of. Uh, so you went for it. I went for it and uh, really put everything into it. And that yeah. last minute was hell, actually. Yeah. yeah. Wow. It was really hot. Yeah. And the last turn's really full on. Yeah. Succubus. It's really uh, fast, and uh, <laughs> I realised, to be honest. That I need to do some work on my on my fitness and sort of like if you're going to play that music, you can actually have to get fit on it. Yeah, yeah. And I'm 60, so that's the other irony: is to be in, finally get him a rock band band at 60. It's a classic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, you I mean, you talked before about um, the the sort of yin and the yang and the you know the the duality and the Finding something outside of music, and you've got your little haven where you're based at the beach. Yeah. Tell me about. Um, you said you, you 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 sort of play host to musicians out there from time to time. Well, any group, any musician that comes to Wellington that's connected with, uh, well, has been connected with the space. Happy Fred's Pyramid Club. Yeah. Uh, if it's a nice day, part of the hosting them would be 
get them out to the beach and let's have a barbecue out there so they can see the coast and have a hang and it's outside of the city yeah and get some perspective on the placement yeah, of Wellington in terms bit. of the uh, yeah Just keep the ball rolling yeah the interest rolling instead of yeah. walking up and down Cuba Street <laughs> yeah yeah um, so over the years uh, you know like a lot of people have come out there and I mean like Peter Brotsman, Evan Parker, wow. the, the, all the uh, Hun Benedict, Manny Nomia, um, Vinnie Agolia, Eugene Chadbourne, Bar Phillips, um, a huge amount of the yeah. Japanese musicians have uh, gone out there, a couple of people from Mongolia, some DJs from Mongolia, um, Alfred Half from Germany. And there's probably another lot that I can't think of offhand. Yeah. They've all come out and we've given them a barbecue and they've always been, and then a lot of musicians come out as well and they're, they're really good days. But the best one was most, uh, the best one for me anyway, was the one that where we hosted Hun Benedict with the band he was in, which was um, uh, Sean uh, Eric Bowen's group. He was the trumpet player and they had Sean Bergen on saxophones and there was a bass player I've never never got his name he, he was a bit invisible and I don't even know if he even came out to the batch that day mm. but they came out and they just loved it and it was just a really nice day and uh, we started hanging around the fireplace talking and it was, it was great and then Bridget got a talpita leaf folded it in half and blew in it and got it started playing this little thing and Sean the sex post was what are you doing and she showed him so he he started learning to play the leaf he was blown away by it mm. and that um, at the gig when they did their concert the first thing that happened was they, they walked out on the stage and he pulled some leaves out of his pocket <laughs> wow. bent it over and did yeah. a little uh, leaf call which yeah, I took wow. it to be a little symbol it's a nice little tribute yeah. yeah 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 so they did the gig Everyone loved it, and we said, "You're going to come back." And they said, "No, we'll probably go to the um, go to the hotel room." Actually, before that, we had did a gig where we played a concert. They played a concert. We did our thing, and they just sat there and listened to us. Then, actually, then it was going to be a collaboration, and this whole time, Hun and I hadn't really connected he's quite a tough dude he's about six foot six and as far as I'm concerned he's a you know he's one of the the greats mm. so but I wasn't revering of him as such I'm just trying to be his friend you know but it, it wasn't connecting he you know he was but he was smoking pop down Cuba Street and I said man you can't smoke pop down here you can I took took him up to the rehearsal room we had a bit of a hang anyway that night we're doing the double gig and there's two drum kits there and He's sitting behind the drum kit and he's wrapping the tea towel around his head and that. And then he turned to me and he said, Hey, Ant, you know, mate, I'd love to come back here for a year and hang with you guys. <laughs> you know, uh, this is awesome. I love it here. Uh, you guys have got such a cool thing going down. But he said, I can't because I've separated from my partner and we've got a kid that's autistic and I'm actually living in my car. And this story unfolded that was... And I thought, fuck, he's opened up. 
Awesome. Mm, wow. Just before we we're about to play. And, and I wow, that's awesome, you know. And so we did the play. He played Rick Cranston's drum kits. It was fucking loud. Mm. It was weird. And I told um, Roger Watkins, who had the little drum shop, you should yeah. come along because Sean Bergen's um, South African. And so he thought, oh, yeah. And then I said, you should check this drum out, man. He's gonna, it'll blow your brain out. So the gig happened, and then we all went back to Happy, and he came back and went over and talked to Sean Bergen. And the next minute, it was just like all on. I don't mean a scrap. Something had happened. And what had happened was that um, Roger Watkins comes from Johannesburg. And when he grew up, he had he was in a little gang. Yeah. And that gang, they had tattooed a wee cross on their arm. And um, so he goes over and introduces himself. And... Um, they're talking about South Africa and so on, and then Sean pulls his sleeve up. He's got a wee cross on his arm. Wow. And they look at each other's crosses, and they're like, what the fuck? And they worked out that they weren't in the same gang, but they knew each other in, jo- in Johannesburg, and they're actually in the same little neighbourhood. Wow. And so Sean was pretty blown away by it but Roger was seriously blown away so for yeah. the next month in his shop he was playing all the record he bought a whole bunch of CDs he was playing Classic. nothing but wow. Sean Bergen <laughs> yeah wow so uh, that was a uh, then they did their gig and they said do you want to come back and they said no we're going to go to the hotel but so we had a party at Happy and the gear was set up still from the night before and they came in mm. and they played for an hour and a half they played background music to our party for an hour and a half and then joined the party and they keep saying oh we've got to go we've got to go we've got, we're catching the flight at five and at six and they were still hanging around at 4 30 till finally it was blatantly obvious they're just going straight to the hotel getting their gear and going and catching the plane yeah well and then i heard feedback later on they, that they really did love it in fact Manny Nymea sort of said I was thinking of going to New Zealand should I go there and he said fuck you go to Wellington there's this whole scene there it'll blow you out so he yeah. turned up you know, yeah. that's what happens so um, I took Bar Phillips around there and I told everyone to. I just want to take him from the car park to the batch on my own so I get half an hour to talk to him because I wanted to talk to him about Stu Martin because mm. he played with him for so long and mm. Stu Martin's one of my favourite drummers and uh he gave me the lowdown on him, which was absolutely fascinating, because um, I found out, which was a bit sad, but he's, he's, his ego was so full on that he burnt lots of bridges because he's a bit of an asshole apparently, which I hate to hear, but I don't care because his drumming's so amazing. But he was taught by this guy Sam Milano in New York and he became at the age of 14 he was like his protege he, this mm. guy was seriously mm. gifted and so Sam Milano put heaps of effort into him and so he would go back to the Bronx to where he has lived and his best friend was Barry Otstall and so he would show Barry Otstall everything he'd learnt at that mm. lesson that day mm. and so I, it all started you know all these dots are connected yeah, yeah. then yeah. I went to New York and I go into the shop and there's this old guy behind the counter and he pulls out these Pipes, and he says, "Oh, you know, I am Jane Cropper and 
God knows who else. They all used my pipes, you know. <laughs> and we had this big chat, and he got the pipes out, and he's playing on the on the um, practice pad, and he's laying down some amazing stuff. And I was like, Wow, man, you've got a history. And I should have asked more of his history, but I didn't. And then at the very end, he gave me a little card. And he said, This is me. And I looked at it, and it was Sam Milano. Far thought, oh, <laughs> if I'd known, if I'd yeah. brought up Student Martin's name, he could have gone. Yeah. I taught that guy, and yeah. I would have had a whole other story. But and I, I did say, Sam Milano, I've got some of your drum books. Didn't want to say I've never read them because I collected drum books. These are really old forties yeah. dance yeah. band drums for dance band, I think, and double bass drum for dance band. Hence why Stu Martin plays double bass drums. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah. Fascinating. I get to talk to these guys and pump their brains for knowledge. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. What the, experience. Basically, well, connecting the dots. Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say, like, um, it's always for anyone who's you know got any sort of um, obsession with music or whatever it is, like. But it's always you hang on every word once you start to. See, you can almost see these connections happening in front of you, and those sorts of conversations. You're waiting for the next thing piece to fall into place, and it's exciting. Yeah, well, it is. You know, man, I was talking to Manny because he he's on he was on an album at the age of 26 called um, from from love uh, love from Sticksland or something, mm. and it was four drummers, a jazz group, and a Basel drumming group all playing together mm. and the four drummers were Daniel Humea, Tony Antolini, Pierre Favre and Manny. Well the other three are like really, one's from Switzerland, one's from Italy, one's from France or Belgium and you know they're, they're Europe's finest drummers and he's mm. Manny and I thought well, sorry, I assume shit he must be a, one of the top drummers and this is long before he's going to join Guru Guru mm. but when I talked to him about it he said, I've never had any formal training. I just did my thing. I played in Dixie bands and worked my way through. And so I thought, wow, that's fascinating. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that you played with, you yeah. know, you had something because you're playing with those guys. Yeah. There's a lot of drummers they could have picked. Yeah. Um, but, and he said that, admitted that a little bit was because he was studying tabla. And at that point, there was a lot of interest in Eastern music and Western, uh, you know, Indian music and so on. And so he got a little bit of a thumbs up in that direction because he was dabbling in tabla. Yeah, yeah. But no. he, he couldn't even play tabla. He, he made it quite, you know, it was just, he had them and he dabbled. But he must have been quite gifted. Uh, it tends to be a um, drumming skill set that just sits outside of the abilities of most Western players that can tinker with any sort of, you know, that, that's its own thing, isn't it? Like, well, it's not like having a set of conga drums and being able to roughly play them. Like, no. you can't roughly play tabla, you can either play them or you can't. Yeah, yeah. They're a separate thing, yeah. He developed the, what he called the many time, where he put tubes into the holes, and so he could grab the tube and blow into it and, right. it and change yeah, the pitches yeah, yeah, and so on. Yeah. So a clever cheat. Yeah, interesting basically. little. Um, yeah. Thing going down there. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, look, when I, um, I mean, I've had a, f a, f a few great phone conversations with, with, you know, famous musicians and whether they're famous or not is sort of by the by, but people that have done things you've heard of and you want to, you know, connect these dots and hear these stories. But I remember it was about 
must have been about seven years ago talking to Sonny Rollins and um, or five or six years ago and walking down the hall after the phone call which lasted an hour and it was like I'd just run a race you know I was punch drunk it was just I was elated but it was just it was intense like I had sat listening to a, to a guy who told me story you know some quite a few of the stories I kind of knew and I was but I was waiting to hear them in his words and yeah. in his voice and then there were other things he told me you know and he talked to me about Max Roach who was one of my first drumming heroes you know, and I think Buddy Rich was the first one because I was told about him. So as a 10-year-old, I listened to Buddy Rich and went, wow, that's pretty amazing. But I've obviously moved away from that and then you go back to it and there's certainly stuff that he can do that's amazing. But Max Roach was the first guy I heard that I sort of went, wow, this guy's... The thing about Buddy Rich is that he was a show drummer. Yeah. So yeah. when it came to a drum solo, yeah, I've come conceded finally that Technically, his drum solos are magnificent. Yeah, totally. But uh, it's a circus act. Though. I can't remember. <laughs> I don't know one album that everyone's got in their collection that yeah, Buddy Rich is on. No, because he never did. He never put out a good album. No, he's Whereas a showman. Max Roach, uh, yeah. it's the other way around. Yeah, I can't yeah. think of an album that's shit. Yeah, yeah, Every yeah. single album he did is a seminal has album. It's got, got something magical of, about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, because yeah. uh, he I, he got voted best drummer in one of the mags, and it just yeah. I blew a fuse. I was so pissed off because someone like Max, I can't remember how it went, but there was Tony Williams was like seventh or something. And I thought, like, who's who's who the hell's organised this? Yeah. Uh, but if you're talking, uh, it depends what you're talking about. Because uh, but I would never say that. Um, like I mentioned the um, drum solo by Papa mm. Joe mm. not even in the same ballpark as um, uh, Buddy Rich tech for technique and yeah yeah and yeah Buddy, but you, once you see it yeah. you realise it's the most musical drum solo you'll ever hear yeah that um, that where he's throwing all sorts of little tidbits in still keeping what's going on going you know and, and telling he, a story he's a nice guy telling a story well, Max Roach certainly did that, told a story. Oh, whereas, yeah. whereas Buddy Rich's solos are like, "Look at me and look at how good I am." And, and oh, no, I think they're good. Oh, yeah, yeah, tells but a story, no, but man. he definitely tells totally, the story. Totally, but it's all there. But it's, so but it's that the, showman thing. When, oh, once the cat comes back in and the group's going to come mm, back in, mm. it won't. It'll be. It mm. won't be. It, I've listened to a lot of his stuff, trying to find the album that. Mm. Think, oh, finally, this will be it. He played with Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie and Monk. Mm. It's a terrible album. Mm, mm. In my opinion, he plays brushes for the whole thing, and the, and it was it just didn't happen. Uh, man, you you played with those two guys, and you and you didn't do it. Though I have heard an early album with him with Artie Shaw, which I must admit is actually quite nice. Um, he um, it was a double album. I shouldn't have, I got rid of it, but I shouldn't have. What's actually. the trio one with him and Art Tatum? Um, it's him. and Lionel Hampton. Yeah, yeah. That I like that. Well, I like yeah, that. It's okay. But, but I like it not necessarily because of him. You know, like it's, there's nothing about maybe that's what I like is that he's kind of, if anything, slightly more toned down than he is on his own group recordings. Oh, he's, he's certainly. Uh, but there's some killer stuff on that. Right. Like, you know, he does really swing on that without showing off. Yeah, yeah I know. I that. think on that one. Sure. Yeah. But it, you're right. Like, it's still not like an all time classic must hear album. I just no, like that because cause I'm curious about him. Yeah. So that's just the way it is. I mean, he was—he started playing when he was in circus and he's four. Mm. 
and he's an asshole too. Well, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Terrible yeah. asshole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, uh, the, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah totally. The, Fantastic. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, the, it's, yeah, on yeah. the bus. Yeah, it's hilarious, but it's awful, isn't music. it? Yeah, yeah, it's awful. It's terrible. Yeah. Terrible. Yeah, yeah it's, but it's it, it's become like um, a kind of comedy folklore thing to check it out, to, to, to laugh at how much of a prick he is, like how awful he is. And it's it's you sort of laugh with embarrassment of I'm glad I'm not there. I'm glad I'm not. Well, I'm being just out. Why yeah, yeah. is he doing it? And why is he such a dick? Like why, why is, is he, he such a prick? Yeah. Because yeah. Um, they're on the road. They're in the bus. I mean, it's hard work. You don't need someone well, some doing good, that to you. There's some good YouTube clips too. There's one. I think it's on the Parkinson show or something where he, you know, he counts in and he does his big press roll. And then like one of the horns just misses the cue, and he and then they start. And then he just cuts it off after a like couple of bars, and he just shoots the, the filthiest look. And you, the, the YouTube comments are kind of like, you know, man, how paid out did that guy get afterwards? And then they started again, and you know, he sort of nods his head like, yeah, I'm happy now. But just the look he gives is frightening. Of you can totally think like that band just got chewed out. Like you could almost believe that's what happened before that famous bus tape. <laughs> you know, like even though it's after that. Yeah, I don't think he's a nice guy. No. Whereas Max Roach, I think, was. Like, well, oh, totally. It seemed totally. that way, you know. Totally. He's a yeah. master. I saw yeah. him play in New York. Oh, wow. And, um, well, funny enough, I, uh, I was incredibly underwhelmed. Right. I'm seeing a dude yeah, with his yeah. group, yeah. Odin Pope. It was the group that was doing a lot of stuff on Sonote. Mm. I thought, this is going to be, you know, Dynamite. Be yeah. so awesome. Yeah. Uh, but it was so, in my opinion, it was so matter of fact, mm. sort of, Clinical or something? No, like, not clinical. Just matter of fact, it was just yeah. they doing another gig. Yeah, like yeah. Vana in the corner, sort of yeah. thing. It was just I didn't feel like. Whereas uh, I went and saw um, the guitarist that used to play with Tom Waits, um, Mark Rebo. Mark Rebo, his first gig with his new group, the Rootless Cosmopolitan. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that the stuff. Knitting Factory with mm. um, Don Byron, who wasn't known, had mm. Anthony Coleman. It was a pretty fresh little group, mm, mm. and it was packed out, and that was unbelievable. Mm. And then uh, my brother went and saw something, and then me, Neil, and Steve went to this other gig where we were going to see David Murray with Dave Burrell on piano, this dude on bass, Dave, Dave Williams, I think, and Phil Wilson on drums. I mm. thought, you know, this is going to be awesome. We turned up at this place. I can't remember what bar it was, and it was empty. <laughs> and uh, I was like, "Wow, I was expecting something a bit different than that." Mm. And uh, so I had a chat to a guy that was standing at the bar, and, and then it was like, "We'll go down to the front." And the guy I was talking to was the guy, head of the Smithsonian Institute, so that was quite interesting for a while. And then we sat down at the table, waited, and Phil Wilson came over. Hey guys, where are you from? And I'm from New Zealand. You know, blah blah blah, and uh, and then someone said, "Oh, we're going upstairs, Phil." Okay, man, and off he goes. And then about twenty minutes later, he comes back down and he's wasted, and uh, he tries. He sits, sits down and talks to us again, but man, is fucking having real difficulty understanding what he's saying. Mm. And then the the group come up on stage, and off they go. And it was one of those gigs where. Um, I love Phil Wilson, I think he's an awesome drummer. And within the first 
quarter of an hour he dropped the drumsticks five times and he only had a pair mm. so, he didn't have, had, so if he when one flew out of his hand he had to carry on playing with just the one stick and I started freaking out thinking what on earth is going on like, this is weird man so that Dave Murray would do a solo then he'd finish the solo and then go and pick up this drumstick hand it back and then I started hyperventilating virtually and then I'd, so in the end I just closed my eyes to hell with it and closed my eyes they were right from here to that fan away <laughs> and um, it was incredible mm. It was really great, mm. and it was worth it. But boy, you know, it was a real insight. Here's a guy who's played with the first drum of the Art Ensemble. He played with um, Paul Butterfield. He's played with everybody, mm. and he's only got two sticks because he's not onto it enough to get another set <laughs> from back up. And he's dropping them. Mm. You know, I, I haven't dropped a stick on a gig this year, mm. and I don't think I did it last year. Mm. I, I can't even think when the last time I dropped a stick but um, to do it five times in, in quarter of an hour is kind of like pushing pushing it man yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what's the what's the what's the aim for this year you said you've got the jazz festival thing you'll you'll probably put something together for that this what, year I've what, got, I'm in five groups yeah so this year I would like each group to keep, just keep going and develop mm, mm. It's about that simple, really. Mm. I just want, um, uh, like, I'd like the lab coats to do some workshopping and let's see if we can get start working towards a third album. Mm. Um, yeah, because I mean, you mentioned the lab, co- lab coats and I didn't pick up on that, but I, but um, to say anything about it, but you know, those are two great records. Yeah, the first they, one I real first one I really love, and the second one is is great too. It's just sure. uh, you know, and I like how different they are, but you can tell it's the same group kind of thing. Like yeah. it, there's a real magic to that, and I've I think I've only seen Lab Coats play once, but it was wonderful. I loved well, it. You, but that first album I played a funny lot. Funny enough, that uh, one of the um, you reviewed us. Yeah, possibly. Yeah, yeah. yeah, no, yeah. You reviewed us, and uh, the headline was. Local bands hear past plotting tortoise. <laughs> I don't write the headlines, you know that. Didn't you? No, no, fuck no. No, no writers don't write the headlines. Oh, well, that's so, what it had. Yeah, Local yeah. bands hear past plotting tortoise. I mean, put it this way if the headline was good, I probably wrote it. If it was shit, I definitely didn't. Right. <laughs> no, no, no. no writers, um, don't, writers for newspapers don't get to write okay, the Okay, well, I always thought that you. But your yeah. review was basically that because it was CO Bob that had extra horns and it was actually the Lab Coat's first gig. Right. And we were doing support for Tortoise. Right, right. And so it was quite a big sound yeah, and yeah. everything. And we just went off. And CL Bob went off. Both groups went off. Yeah. And then Tortoise came on and they definitely did not go off. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it was just one of those moments where actually local bands, everyone thinks that it all happens overseas, but in actual fact, we beat them up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that rev- I've, never, I've still got the review somewhere because <laughs> I just love the... Uh, the uh, Headline. Oh, see, that's the best bit. That wasn't me. <laughs> the um, so the yeah, uh, lab coats is we're talking about doing another mm. album. Mm. So I'd like that to happen. The melancholy babes just keeps going, mm. and we I think we've put out. You know, we tend to put two to three CDs out a year. Mm. Um, me, Dan, and Tom are pottering, and we're about to put a CD out. Um, Teeth, I'd like to keep get another. Set mm. of music together and, and mm. get that yeah, because you guys are basically just pushing that. I mean, you know, it's a new, our, it's still a new band. You've got yeah. your repertoire and and you've got. We a, need another set though. Then you've we got. Can do a full you need night. some new. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, 
so that would be nice and um, the little blast I'm just going to pot away with that because uh, they're working musicians mm. but um, I'm having so much fun and I just it's just uh, I, I did so much work on that early New Orleans stuff that it seems a shame to have it not been Mm. that I don't get a chance to play it mm, mm. and things have changed so much because the Wellington scene now there's all these marching bands and there's a lot of it, people cocking an eye towards that or cocking an ear that uh, I think it's perfect timing really because this band is actually a bloody good band everyone in it's they, the guys really know what they're doing and, I'm, and that's, that's really impressive actually I was about to say that recording like Releasing recordings doesn't seem all that important to you over playing, but actually you're you're on loads of recordings. Over the years, you're on loads of recordings, and then you mentioned like Melancholy Babes, for example. You you know regularly puts out stuff, and then there was that great record you did not that long ago with Jonathan Crayford and Patrick Bleakley. No, I'm always trying to put stuff out. So stuff does actually come out. I'd rather come out on physical form and ideally be great if it all came out on vinyl. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it doesn't work like that. Yeah. So to get down on CD, you can do. Yeah. But I don't want it. I want it in physical form. I don't want to be putting stuff straight onto the uh, internet or as such. Um, Not interested. And what was that other trio group with Dan? You put a couple of records out. Um. What was that called? Manta Rays. Yeah, Manta Rays. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So those are great records. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think the trick is just keep going. I'm not um, jaded by any stretch of the imagination, so yeah. it's just just keep going, man, and uh, keep trying to get... I wouldn't say get better, but... But not get worse. Just keep playing <laughs> just good keep music playing good and stuff, making yeah. sure it's uh, it's relevant. Yeah. You know, I'm not. Int- I hate the word nostalgia when it's yeah. applied to music. I'm not interested in my past. That you know, that people talk about. You know, going back to their roots. That stuff leaves me cold. Really? It's all about yeah. um, moving forward. Moving so on. even when I'm playing, when I talk about going my roots, and I talk about the New Orleans jazz stuff from mm, the twenties, mm. it's not my roots. No. It's just a, a, you know, that's not. Uh, I don't have any roots. As yeah. such, yeah, yeah, everything's my roots. So, uh, you know, to what I do tomorrow is what's most important, mm-hmm. and uh, and it's got to be relevant to the people who are out there who are most likely to listen to it. And as we know, music moves fast, mm. but it does go in cycles. So, uh, certain things don't work quite so well. Other things work fine, and at the moment, all those groups I talk about, they've all got a wee place at the moment. Mm. You know. So, um, with those five groups, and I guess occasional other things that obviously are going to pop up this year as they have done other years, that if that's the yin, you know, do you find enough time for the for the yang? Well, I don't work on farms anymore. I'm too old, mm. and I, ne- I managed to do 25 years without having a serious accident. So, I'm I'm not w- willing to push my luck any further because mm. uh, I'm not. 21 anymore the batch plays a massive role in my life uh, and, I, and, and and that's all I need you know because I just go home I've got my place I've got the sea um, it's very simple I haven't, I haven't got power or anything um, it's a very little beautiful spot on the coast and I just spend as much time as I can out there doing whatever <laughs> you know and a lot of it centres around my dog mm. at the moment because he's 18 and he's like 
90% deaf and about 80% blind. So he t uh, is almost like a, a, my priority in mm -hmm. life because he hasn't got long to go and I want to make sure he has a nice time up until that moment. So tonight, the, the bummer about tonight is I can't drive all the way to my batch because right. we had the big uh, uh, swell a week ago that washed half the beach, well, yeah. parts of the beach where I can't get my car around there. So I'll be driving to a third of the way around as a car park, getting out. Yeah. In the old days, I could let him out and he'd just, but he's blind. Yeah. And he fell down the bank about two months ago, which told me that's the end of that. Yeah, yeah. So tonight I've figured out and got organised, I've got a lead and a torch. So I'll put him on the lead. And walk. Back. And torch, and we'll walk the 20-minute walk round so that I can get home because the other option is I go and sleep at the pyramid club and I'm not in the mood. <laughs> I'd mm -hmm. rather sleep in my own bed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he wants to walk. Yeah, yeah. So the, my life is centred around that um, and it's I'm comfortable with it. It's nice to, you know, I know you haven't been there but if you could see what it looks like when I just walk out the door, mm. you'd understand instantly mm. uh, why I would... Um, Oh, no, I mean, there's... And I've got to make use of it. You get, I'm, yeah. I was the lucky guy that got the batch. Yeah. Not everyone gets batches, and they certainly don't get them given to them. So I'm the lucky guy that... that so I've got to make use of that luck. Yeah. You can't yeah. just have it and treat it. Yeah. I've got to actually... No, I've, t I've talked to a couple of other musicians that have told me about it, you know. People have fond stories about spending time there. Yeah, it's an awesome place, and it's only from when I get in, if I can drive to my batch, from my batch, when I get in the car to when I've parked the car, it's 25 minutes. Yeah. Which is, you know, nothing. Yeah, yeah. If I walk to the car park, it's a 35-minute walk, then it's a 10-minute drive to the batch. It's nothing. Yeah. You know, and yet when you get around the corner there, it's like you're in another planet. There's no one around. There's yeah, nothing. Yeah, wow. You know, from six o'clock onwards, the whole place, there's no one around. And the, the sea's just there, and there's nothing between me and the and the South Pole, you know. There's there's no uh, landmass between... So when I look out true south, that there's, there's just sea forever. <laughs> wow. And I love it. Yeah. And I've been there when there's been storms. I've been there when the biggest waves... Were, one time there was 40, foot, 40 feet waves coming into that beach. I couldn't sleep. That was so loud. The uh, in the morning, the whole coast had been washed away. It was that big storm we had about four and a half years ago. Yeah, yeah. Washed the whole coast away. It was incredible. Yeah. And I was there, smack in the middle of it all out there. I walked around, so I could, you know, I love that shit. Um, I walked around for the last three and a half years, actually, not this year, but prior three and a half years since that storm, I walked around every night, every day, and. Uh, you know, I'd do a gig and I wouldn't, then we'd hang, then find those guys I've got to go and uh, drive out there, get get out of my nice gear into some old gear, put my wet weather gear on, have we smoke, yeah. <laughs> and then off I go into yeah. the darkness wow. and walk around the coast for 35 minutes. And sometimes <laughs> it wasn't that fun because it's pissing down and it's windy and that, but then about five minutes in, you get your, it all sort of settles in and suddenly yeah. I just stand around and I just think, man, you're the luckiest guy on the planet. Everyone else is in bed, all you know, and here you are out here with the elements. Yeah, yeah. And and loving it because once I get home, who cares? And I've learned through farming, it is water getting wet and that sort of thing is not a big deal mm. actually, mm. because you get home and you change out. Mm, mm. 
it's not a big deal, it doesn't kill you. And uh, so, you know, uh, that sort of thing is what I thrive on these days. Um, and that's what goes into my music. And I, my music's probably changed a little bit these days because I'm actually quite very happy, actually. And so I think that com- probably is coming out. Whereas back in the days of uh, when Happy had the bar, I wasn't quite so happy, actually. In fact, I was really bummed out. And um, I'm sure that reflected in the music, which, funny enough, is the music around that Jonathan Crawford, Patrick Bleakley album. Mm. I wasn't a very happy person at that point. But what was holding me together was I was playing shitloads of music. So uh, that's part of the reason I put that album out, actually. Mm. Yeah, I really love it. with I... emotion, I'll tell you. You have no idea how much emotion's going in that. Cause well... It's just me, Patrick, and everybody at that Around that time, everyone seemed to be just a little bit unhinged. Mm. But we're all holding each other together and supporting each other through other music. So My... the music really... Had something to say. You know? My immediate reference point when I listened to it was that Money Jungle album. You know, the, oh, right. out, um, that. But you're right. I yeah, I, I think it's just the you know, like certainly the way it kicks in, and then maybe I'm I'm linking it to sort of you know three very distinct and forceful musical personalities, and there's parallels in terms of that sort of stuff. And that I certainly mean it as a compliment because I love that Money Jungle record. But oh yeah, you know, that's. And in fact, that's the, I mean, because that's a, that obviously, um, with Mingus and Roach, you know, no complaints, they're killers, but that's amazing. Well, Mingus is unhinged on that album. But that's amazing playing from Ellington. Um, oh, you know, he's always amazing, but but that's, I've never heard him no, like no that on, that's it, eh? That's the only representation of him. Mingus was freaking him. out on that. He had a big gig coming up and he hadn't done uh, the arrangements for it, so he was panicking about that town hall concert and mm, then of mm. course Ellington's his hero mm. and so he got himself in a really weird headspace and uh, if, right. you, if you uh, listen to the uh, album in the right order that they recorded them you can hear how right the progression of it yeah like he's the, or getting the, worried and the, there's one where he's just doing that yeah, bass yeah. line that just goes for ages yeah, yeah. he's you know he's he's pushing shit and uh, but he received Max was there to keep it all isn't it interesting? I guess it's you know. Um, I guess I've thought about this before, but that's just putting it there for me. Jazz records are so much about you know the personality of the player and the circumstances. There's so many stories through the history of of jazz of people's mindset around records and the sort of head games they get. You know, I'm thinking the obvious one would be something like Art Pepper meets the rhythm section. You know. And, and all these sort of, you know, and him freaking out about working with Miles' guys and... Well, the fact that he hadn't played for a year. Exi- well, and yeah, he yeah. And his saxophone was fucked. Yeah. And he had to get the rubber bands yeah. on it. And then he had one reed and that was covered in mould and he had to go along. And he, in that photo on the cover, he's mm. just chundered mm. behind that tree that he's leaning against. And... and then I, it should turn out to be record of the year. Yeah, and, and there's probably <laughs> similar stories about half a dozen or more Chet Baker records and I guess I guess you could start to get into the actually part of the story behind this is the story of addiction and so forth there's all of that but yeah I'm just thinking like as a genre I guess maybe country music there's some of it and a lot of country music too And but oh. that always feels well that always feels a bit more loaded with, with a kind of concocted mythology whereas the jazz thing seems very much about hard on, large, hard on sleeve hard on sleeve this is who I am in this moment. Well, because you're playing 
instrumental music. Mm. It's supposedly meant to be uh, improvised. Mm. The, the tunes are meant to be vehicles for improvisation. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, starting points. And the improvisation is actually them telling, stating their case. Yes. Because they're not using lyrics. Yeah. So the real good people um, are telling magnificent stories and are very eloquent in, in, in what they're saying and, and uh, that's what makes those people great. That's why I hate about, what I really fucking hate actually is when people transcribe stuff so that, and they do it all the time. So they'll transcribe, God, let's say a, a Coltrane solo, but their sense of history hasn't got hold of them enough to realise that around that time that he did that, they didn't even have the vote. They were second-class citizens. So you've learned a solo mm. of a guy who's telling a story and he's got all this grief in it. That these white dudes, yeah. students, are learning a solo that's From, actually saying, fuck you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just think, wow. That's Transcribing incredible. Alabama or something. Yeah, Anything. Yeah. And yeah, it's not yeah. just Coltrane, but all those guys, yeah. they're all saying the same thing. Fuck you, we want some dignity. We want, you know, and then these little kids are learning it and don't realise that, that what they're saying. And I just find that so bizarre mm. and gives me the creeps. You know, I just think, no, you can't do it. Mm. And I'm surprised that no one's sort of explained it enough so that they understand that, that actually no one's ever said they're saying fuck you. I've never heard anyone say that before. But that's what I interpret. How else could you do that inflated tear? Mm. Elton Ron mm. Kirk. I mean, I'd really heard it. There's grief there, man. Mm. You don't learn the solo of grief if you're a white <laughs> guy and you just and you've paid your money to go along to Messi. It just yep. doesn't work. <laughs> it's just weird. I saw uh, when the first jazz school stuff that happened was um, it was Jamie Abersol. He obviously was the one who'd come up with the idea. Dave Baker came on board because he had the skills because he played with George Russell and they're using that, that Lydian chromatic tonal system as the backbone for the whole thing, though you, no one knows that. No one even mentions it, but that's kind of what happened. And they brought out a camp here where all these musicians came out and they had a summer camp like they do in the States. And the first year it was uh, uh, Dave Liebman was the, the main group. Mm. Second year was Woody Shaw. And I went, went to both of them. And I, when it came to the combo section, I went straight to so, the so-called top guys who are going to be tutored by Woody Shaw. And I won't say who all the guys were, but they were the supposed top guys in New Zealand. And they were all there, and they had the charts, and... He's blind, he comes in, Stafford James, the bass player, was bring, was his minder, so they brought him in, and, okay, man, you know, let's do the tune. In they go, and they got in about eight bars, 12, I don't know. They got in somewhere in there, and I was right by the door. He turned, he just turned around and went, this is bullshit, man. And he was gone, and the and the um, and the band kind of played on a bit, and then it petered out, and there was this terrible vibe in the room, as you can imagine. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it was like, what the fuck's happening? And Steve Turo, the trombone player, was there, and he said, "Okay, I'll take it, I'll do it." But you know, and he pulled pulled it pulled it up again and got it going. And I thought, wow, man! So I started walking back to um, to my com combo, mm. and I was going through the quad part of Messi, and here's. Um, Woody Shaw and he's got um, 
Jamie Appersold up, up against the wall, not physically, just but he's mm. up against the wall and he's telling him, this is fucking bullshit, man, this is crazy shit. Mm. As I worked pa- walked past, I slowed down so I could hear what was going on and I realised he's saying, man, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to do this crap, you know, and, I, and he was going, it's okay, man, you know, it's cool. And that was that. And then, of course, at the end, they did the big concert. And so the first half is all the tutors doing combo things mm. at the Opera House. Second set was Woody Shaw Quintet. And the first set was all fusion-y shit Mm-mm. and standards mm. and nothing. Dime a dozen. Just nothing stuff, man. Mm. And it was like Schofield and all sorts of people, but they just, I don't know. Mm. And then Woody Shaw came on and he had Tony Reeves on drums, who's like 20 years old. He had Mulgrew Mul- Miller on piano. They've both been... Found there were new dudes that he'd found it somewhere, mm. and Stafford James was established, and Steve Touré was established, and they did this gig, and that was just incredible. And he's blind, and he was doing mm. Tai Chi on stage when he wasn't playing trumpet, and the whole thing, and it was so black, and it was just like, yeah, man, this is the real shit. Yeah, yeah. And I could see now why he was so bummed out at having to teach the so-called top guys. Yeah. Because they weren't in the same ballpark. Nah. Not even close. Nah. Um. Yeah, I've never forgotten that. That was a great moment. Yeah, wow. Because th- the top guys, I've got issues with some of them still yeah. over the years, and uh, Woody Shaw was not impressed. No, and he's, um, you know, something special. Like he's he's been around. He's, he's done. Been, he's done as yeah, exactly. He's he's he, he's good. Talking to he, Gopal, who had ran Slug Saloon, was fascinating because mm. he was there when. Lee Morgan got shot. Wow. And uh, he the whole story unfolded because he was cleaning up. That was after the gig had finished and they were cleaning up. Have you watched the film, the new film? No. I hope like Hal Gopal's all the way through it. It's pretty good. Oh, I bet it's, it is. It's, it's, but he deserved. Yeah, yeah. He, unfortunately, he deserved what came his way. He was a fucking asshole. Yeah, yeah. Actually, well, that, that to what happened. A, that comes across. This it. poor woman yeah. looked after him, yep. got him off the drugs, and then as soon as he got off, he went and got another chick. Yeah, yeah. And she was so bummed out. She shot him, and not only that, but she, but, you know, the, I don't know if they say it on there, but she pointed the gun at him, and he said, "There's no bullets in there." Mm, mm. So she went and got some, came back. Mm. And shot him. Mm. <laughs> yeah, no, he's an art. He and an he go, she got about they let her off pretty much. Mm. And I just think it's really sad. He, I don't know what he thought he was doing, but that's just not on. Mm. Uh, but uh, Gopal had fantastic stories about that place. He said he had every group. That was seminal in the, in the mid 60s up to wow. 70. Played there, except he never got uh, Miles to play there and he never got Thelonious Monk's group. Every other group. Monk, yeah. But Monk turned up yeah, at the end of the night to play to the play. piano yeah, yeah. The, while they were cleaning up. Yeah. And um, Sun Ra had a Monday night residency there. Wow. And it was like Jackie McLean, and that's where Miles went all the time because to put in where he grabbed Keith Jarrett and Dejanet from. Um, Charles Lloyd's group mm. so it was that was the spot wow. and he was able to explain why because of the where everyone was flatting and all that but he's got you know I don't know if it was in the, in the movie that went where Gopal um, he's clean oh he's out having a cigarette on the footpath and this big limousine pulls up and the door opens and it's Miles and the, he says get in so he gets in and then when, once he's in there there's another bunch of seats and there's two really beautiful women there facing him and Miles is, has the 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 armrest down and he's got these coat like makes these two lines of coat sets it up and then Gopal has the coke and uh, 
but that they're driving and then he has to go and then they go around the block and they pull in again and he opens the door and says see you later (laughs) 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 drives off (laughs) Um, who's left for you to see that you haven't seen that you want to is there you know in a perfect world no one actually in the sense that I never um, like in the last couple of years there was Ornet came out yeah I mean that should have been like enough but I didn't entirely dig that Okay, well, you say last couple of years. That was ten years ago. Okay, then I know that's still Rollins, recent. But, uh, yeah. Sonny Rollins came, yeah. and I thought I'm going to go to that because I want to hear that his tone. Yeah, but I never. But what I heard, I just thought, wow, that was an amazing gig because both those dudes are in their eighties. Yeah, it was a fantastic gig. He was awesome. Yeah, uh, I love the Sunny. Beautiful. I, I, I'm bummed. I missed um, Ornette. It was the same night as, and it was just one of those things that happens as a reviewer. It was completely incongruous. It was the same night as Lude and Wainwright, and I had to right. go and see Lude and Wainwright, which was cool. But I and if I and I like him, but if I could choose, I would have wanted to go to Ornette because it was the last chance to see him, and it turned out to be a, an absolute last chance. Well, I was but slightly I did, underwhelmed. I did see but it wasn't because yeah. it, was just, it was a weird sound. It took ages because there's three bass players, but. And then uh, the, the, uh, then uh, Wayne Shorter came, yeah. and I got to, the drummer gave me some tickets, so I kind of went along, yeah. thinking, "Oh, let's hear what a, these guys kind of do." I was really seriously thinking I was going to go and hear some um, sort of uh, some fusion, or get to see, mm. you know, footprints or something. And mm. I just thought it'll just bring it home to me that this that type of stuff is so not happening, and I'm going to, uh, you know, and I'm on the right track, sort of. Mm. So we went along, and I, by the time the, the gig finished, I was so gobsmacked by what I'd heard that mm. uh, I had to really, really rethink everything, and yet it just made me feel fantastic. Because they'd never, in the whole gig, I'd, I don't think I heard eight bars mm. of actual time. Mm-hmm. It was the freest gig I've ever heard, I think, just about, because it was in, and yet... Man, it was so out. It was the a, audience was having serious trouble yeah, yeah. dealing with it. It was, was a joy to see Brian Blade. Oh, the bass player him yeah, and yeah, were yeah. just so tight. Yeah. And then uh, I could hear them, feel the audience around me. People were squirming in their seats around yeah, me. And yeah. I was like, wow, everyone's upset by this. Yeah. And this is not the gig they kind of wanted, but they've got it and here he is. And then it got about two-thirds of the way through and they finished this epic piece where the bass player and the drummer were doing these big accents. Mm. And they seemed to be coming out of nowhere and they were just totally off. Mm. Mm. And at the end of that, everyone just went crazy. Yeah, yeah. And then they did the, the sort of so-called encore piece, and the, hardly the note had finished before everyone gave them a standing ovation. And I just thought that's incredible. He, they won them over. Yeah, they turned. They so won them. They the turned audience the over audience and they, Everyone's gone away. Just they actually really did get something magical. I thought that mm. was an uh, incredible gig. Um, that guy, the bass player, I, I kind of, I really did think he was another type of bass player, but like. A kind of the, like Eddie Gomez or someone who I really mm. like, but yeah, mm. the quick-witted mm. bass players, and but it, it wasn't. He mm. was he was like Jimmy Garrison. He was mm. big and round and fat, yeah. and he hardly ever played. You know, he didn't play. He was just there. Wasn't I? I was so blown away. I walked away from there so happy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've thought about it for weeks. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Wayne Shorter's sound and and everything was just fantastic. 
Yeah. yeah, so who else is there to see, you know? Like, that's the thing, isn't it? Like, well, getting I don't to care. that age, yeah, that's what I, yeah, they, yeah, they, yeah, they yeah. just turn up. That's what I mean. So every every now and then there's going to be someone, if, if this, and, and we've, like, it's been quite impressive to think we've got those sort of players in a decade out, all the way out here. And the bummer is, I, it's such a bummer that we didn't get to see, like, Wayne Shorter when he's... Yes. 40 years old. Yes. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we're getting these people where they're, they're, they're on, they're, it's, they're still going and they've, they can, uh, yeah. it's great. But they're really, it's, you know, I'd like to see that someone who's mm. trying to push their way through, uh, and I don't know who, the, in the, in the, the jazz world's not that flash. Mm. Uh, uh, um, it's, uh, it's not really happening, actually. Mm. Mm. Um, Everyone's putting their money into what's his name, Kamazi Washington. Yeah. And I'm just thinking, man, that dude is so not happening. He, that uh, it's not funny. I mean, he, it is happening actually, but he, all he's doing is reiterating a whole bunch of Coltrane shit. And I just think, oh. and Ferris Anderson and the mm. likes. And I just think, no, that man, if you want to hear the, that stuff done well, you just go to the source. Uh, but it seems everyone doesn't know about the past so much, so they always, he's, and I just think it's overblown. Mm. It's, it's just, I mean, I, I, I didn't... So not happening. I would like to, I would still like to see him based on, um, when the album came out, there was an, like an album launch gig that was put online that I thought was pretty cool. And I, I, I do like the album, but I do accept those criticisms of it that, you know, it has kind of been done before and it's... But I still think that album's pretty cool. I like it, you right. know. I do, well, li- I do like it better. And and I and I say that as a, a massive fan of Coltrane and as someone who's you know listened to lots of the things that Kamasi's clearly listened to and is aping. But I think there's something in it that, right. well, that works for me. But I know what you mean. Like, no, I I could be wrong, easily wrong. No, I've heard uh, I've heard that but, from a few other people whose opinion I respect, and I I can understand it. But I think. Yeah, I still think there's a certain joy that he's putting across in that music that to me is quite compelling. The 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 also just the um, the the sort of heart around getting those sorts of players together and performing for what appears to be entirely music based rather than anything else in this day and age is is to me that's kind of enough. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I but don't know. but but um, you know but you know and and, and I don't really saying? look uh, too far ahead, uh, out. No, uh, I listen. I buy music and listen to music for my listening pleasure. But in terms of my craft as a musician, I st- I actually put my money in my own playing these days. Mm. When I'm playing with Jeff and Tom, I feel like we're as good as anybody. The music we're creating, what we have to say, and everything, uh, I'm more than happy with it. So. When it comes to other people, I can't think of anyone because I I really can't think of anyone. Mm. Uh, when when Hun and that came out, Eric, we got to know them. Well, we brought Eric, Eric back out here, and he joined us, and we did a tour of New Zealand. Mm. Uh, to me, that's you know that type of thing. I'd rather play with them mm. than go and listen to someone who's uh, a legend. Mm. I'd rather bring have come have someone come over and actually play with them. That mm. I'd be interested in, and if you ask me who, well, I wouldn't have a clue. 
somewhere. Yeah. You know. Who's also around the next corner, yeah. hopefully. Well, <laughs> yeah, there yeah, is yeah. a couple, actually. Corf Fuller, who's a pianist who lives in Aussie, he'd be great. Mm. And one day that might happen. Mm. You know, it's mm. quite possible because all the connections are there. Yeah. And I've played with them. Jeff's played with them. So I'm sure that is uh, a goodie. And it's, yeah. But it's, it's all about funding. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that sort of thing. Um, and you mentioned way back playing with Mike Nock as a, you know, were you flippantly saying that was a highlight or were you... I was actually. Yeah. I did do one, uh, I played with him three times I think, and but one of them was, two of them were just pl- uh, plays as such. Third one was a, a concert I did in Sydney at the, one of the uh, uh, music festivals over there where it was me, Mike and this bass player Dave Tolley. Uh, and it was, oh shit I'm going to have to go. So mm-hmm. I just heard my dog barking. Mm-hmm. Um, Dave Tolley's a really um, great bass player. No one had heard Mike Knock um, improvise in Sydney, and so it, I knew there was some serious weight put on my shoulders. Mm-hmm. And we did really well. Mm. I did exceptionally well for the simple fact that halfway through my bass drum pedal broke, and so I had to do the whole second part of the gig without a bass drum. And that made things yeah. really yeah. quite tough, actually. Yeah. And somehow managed to get through it. Um, it I'd love that to, to come out, actually. Uh, but it won't, probably. Mm. Because it is one of the few times where Mike was forced to actually completely improvise. So uh, he, there was no tunes. The bass player made it quite clear to me before the gig he didn't want to be playing tunes or chord structures or time. Just improvise, man. I'm fine, happy to do whatever, you know. And that's what we did. That was a really good gig. People, mm. it was packed out. People dug it. Mm. Um, but I haven't played with them. That was about eight years ago, ten years ago, and I haven't done that. Uh, played with them since, and I don't imagine I ever will. He's a cool, dude. I mean, he did a hell of a lot. Yeah, I mean, I think he's great. Like, I, 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 I met up with him. I don't really like his playing as much as I'd like to, and I've gone back to all the stuff he did in Europe and so on. But he did have Fourth Way, and that, mm. the Be Fair, the, uh, that was one of the really original, early groups where using electronics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he. Yeah, that Fourth Way stuff that. is great. Yeah, yeah. Hey, you've got to go. Is there anything that we need to, anything you want to put across before you go? Because we've had a big old chat and I've enjoyed it. Um, We're sweet. There's so much there.